It's great to see everybody here, and uh, my job is to make you all excited about cardiology uh, and to teach you everything I know about cardiology in the next eight hours. Actually, it's four today and four tomorrow, so it's not eight hours straight, but still, it's a lot of cardiology. Um, what I'm going to try to do is really focus on what I think you'll see on the boards. Uh, obviously, cardiology is a huge subject, uh, but there are areas of the boards that uh, they do like to talk about, and I'll try to highlight those areas, um, and I'll try to bring out some of the key points of um, uh, cardiology for you today. As you know, the boards cover all of internal medicine. It turns out cardiology has the most questions on the boards. About 14% of the boards are cardiology. This includes hypertension, and it includes syncope, and includes pre-op evaluation. So it includes things that are in the realm of uh, other areas of internal medicine, but it is one of the larger portions of the boards. It covers hypertension, including secondary causes of hypertension, Pericardial diseases, you won't see a lot, but at least pericarditis is something that's important. Ischemic heart disease is about 2%. This is uh, uh, heart attacks and uh, chronic ischemic heart disease. Uh, dysrhythmias, uh, you will see some EKGs. You won't be asked to actually interpret the EKG, but usually the EKG will be part of a clinical scenario, so you'll have to know what it says to be able to answer the questions on the scenario. There's a little bit of congenital heart disease. Uh, usually it's the more common ones like ASDs and bicuspid aortic valves. Valvular heart disease, the main big valves, aortic and mitral, are covered. And then myocardial diseases, which is mainly all of heart failure. A little bit of endocarditis. Um, vascular disease included in cardiology, so aortic aneurysms, peripheral arterial disease, uh, and syncope. And then finally, a few minor topics of syncope, lipid disorders, and knowing a little bit about the antithrombotic uh, and, uh, uh, medications as uh, well. So you're going to learn all of that in the next eight hours. We're going to go through all of that uh, information. And this is going to be our uh, outline. Uh, today we should get uh, through to peripheral arterial disease, and then tomorrow we'll do valvular heart disease, heart failure, and EKGs. There are some references that are useful to look at. Um, cardiology is probably one of the areas where we have more guidelines than any other area. Um, and guidelines are important because that's what is usually seen on tests. It's what's on the guidelines. So if you know what are class one indications, things that everyone agrees we all should do, and class three indications, things you should never do because you're gonna kill your patient if you do them, those are the things that tend to show up on, on the board. So if you want to have tools, look at the guidelines and look at just class one and class three indications. Those are the things that you should know. And here's the guidelines that will be covered in the lecture today and tomorrow. Uh, basically, everything that you will hear about is going to be covered from the, the guidelines. One small point about guidelines. Guidelines are what most experts agree is what we should and shouldn't do. There's always exceptions. Don't worry about the exceptions. The boards aren't going to ask you about the one in a million uh, case. They're going to ask you about what happens commonly, and uh, that's what uh, the guidelines will tell you about. So with that as an introduction, let's start first with some diagnostic uh, studies. Um, you will see some chest x-rays on the boards. Again, they're not going to ask you like a radiologist to interpret it, but it's usually part of a clinical scenario, so they want you to be able to identify things on the chest x-ray, like heart failure. Heart failure, uh, usually you will see that the heart is enlarged, cardiomegaly. You'll see the very prump blood vessels going up to the uh, apex of the, um, uh, of the lungs. And you can sometimes, if the resolution is good, see these little lines, uh, curly B lines, uh, which is edema uh, in the uh, lung fields as well. 
Sometimes you may see a very bizarrely shaped heart, like this water bottle shaped heart. Uh, this is typically seen in a large pericardial effusion uh, around the heart, uh, giving you this uh, large uh, walt water bottle uh, uh, figure of the heart uh, silhouette. We can also see other structures of the heart, like the pericardium. Uh, at times, you might see uh, calcification of the pericardium, seen here on this chest X-ray on the AP. On the lateral, you can see the calcification in the pericardium here, um, and that's typical of pericardial constriction, uh, usually seen with um, diseases like uh, chronic tuberculosis. A CT scan's an easier way to see it. This very bright white line around here is calcium, just like in bones. You can see it around the heart and then the chambers inside the heart. And so that's calcification in the pericardium, which is typical of advanced pericardial constriction. There are a few congenital heart diseases to be aware of. Coarctation of the aorta is a relatively common uh, condition where there is a band of tissue that uh, narrows the aorta, usually after the takeoff of the great vessels, so it's after the left subclavian. Uh, sometimes you won't see the aortic knob at all, or if you do, sometimes it will look like a number three. Uh, but because of this uh, narrowing of the aorta, there's increased blood flow through the brachial arteries, um, and those arteries get bigger and notch the ribs, and so you can see this rib notching, see this um, eating away at the bottom of the, uh, usually it's the uh, upper ribs where you'll see this rib notching, and that's classic of a uh, coarctation of the aorta. You will see some chest x-rays that have pacemakers. The pacemaker is usually um, in the upper left part of the chest, and then the uh, leads go into the heart. A two-chamber uh, pacemaker will have a lead that goes into the right atrium. That's a lead that comes back and makes a hairpin turn into the right atrium. But the main lead is the lead that goes down into the right ventricle, usually goes to the apex of the right uh, ventricle, as you see here. So this lead here at the apex of the right ventricle, it actually tells you where the division between the right and the left ventricle is. This is gonna be the uh, apex or the intraventricular septum right about here. So this part is the right ventricle and this part is the left ventricle when you see the two chamber uh, pacemaker. Sometimes you'll see just one lead. A backup pacemaker will just have an RV lead. Here's another example of a pacemaker, the lead going into the RV. This one is a more posterior placed. This will be the apex of the right ventricle. Again, the interventricular septum will be here, and this will be the left ventricle, and this will be the right ventricle with the single lead. And then here on the lateral, you can see again where the wire comes down into the right ventricle and it's all the way to the apex of the right ventricle. Remember, the right ventricle is the most anterior structure of the heart. It's right under the sternum, and so you'd expect the uh, lead to be right under the sternum in the lateral view. So those are just some uh, chest x-rays, and some of the cases we'll go through, you'll see some of them again. Echocardiography is probably one of the most common imaging modalities that we use in cardiology. You won't be expected to interpret an echocardiogram, uh, but there are a few classic things on echocardiograms uh, that may show up, again, as part of a case. And so if you see it as part of a case, you want to identify a few major uh, things on an echocardiogram. And so they may refer to uh, what is seen on it and may show you an image, and so you may want to look at that. Why do we get an echocardiogram? It can tell us about cardiac function, chamber sizes, wall thicknesses. It's probably one of the better ways to look at the valves. We can see the valves and determine if there is valvular disease. It's a great way to look at congenital heart diseases. We can see the aortic root very well, so you can measure the aortic uh, root and see if it's dilated. With Doppler echocardiography, uh, we many times can um, estimate pressures inside the heart, and so it's a non-invasive way of looking at pulmonary pressures, pulmonary hypertension. Uh, we can look at the pericardium, look at pericardial effusions, see if there's any masses in the heart. 
Um, and it can pick up aortic dissections. We can see aortic dissections in the ascending aorta and the descending thoracic aorta. Usually for the descending thoracic aorta, however, we have to put a probe into the esophagus and do a transesophageal echo to be able to see that better. And then finally, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is easily diagnosed with an echocardiogram. So we're going to do a couple of questions. A temporary transvenous pacemaker was placed in a patient in the CCU. Minutes later, he develops hypotension, elevated neck veins, but lung fields remain clear. What would an echocardiogram show? A, severe left ventricular dysfunction. B, an acute aortic regurgitation. C, acute mitral regurgitation. D, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Or E, a large pericardial effusion. And almost everybody got it right. It's a large pericardial effusion uh, that is what is being described uh, in this particular uh, case. Neck veins are high, blood pressure is, uh, is low, and it's one of the concerns about putting a pacemaker wire in. A pacemaker wire can puncture the um, relatively thin right ventricle, and you can get a pericardial effusion. Here is a very dramatic echo of a pericardial effusion. So the chest wall is up on top. Here's where the probe comes down. So you're going to have the sternum, and then the most anterior structure underneath the sternum is the right ventricle. It should be right here. Instead, there's this big black space here, and this little thing here is the right ventricle. Here's the intraventricular septum. Here's the left ventricle. And this big black nothing around the heart is a very large pericardial effusion, and the heart is just flapping around or waving in this large pericardial effusion. Um, so something like this is obvious if, again, you know exactly what you're looking at. The right ventricle should have been up near the probe. You see this big black space around the heart, and that's the pericardial effusion. Other common echo findings, of course, are hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, stenosis or regurgitation of valves can be easily seen, not just with imaging, but with Doppler echocardiography, where we can measure gradients and measure blood flow through the valves as well. The basic findings of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is marked thickening of a part of the heart. The classic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is marked thickening of the septum of the heart, um, which will be two to three times thicker than a normal septum and it can obstruct the outflow track, um, and it's this asymmetric left ventricular hypertrophy, which is one of the characteristic findings of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. On this view here, this is a four-chamber view of the heart, which means we have two ventricles on top and two atria on the bottom. This one's turned around a little bit differently than we usually see it, so the left ventricle is on this side, the right ventricle on this side, left atrium and uh, right atrium. And so what's squeezing here is the left ventricle. And this is the septum between the left ventricle and the right ventricle. And notice this big, large, echo-dense area here. This is the massively thickened septum of the heart, which should be about a centimeter thick. So it should only be as thick as the posterior wall. And so this is very typical of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, where you have this very large septal uh, thickening uh, of, the, uh, of the interventricular septum. In aortic stenosis, we tend to see that the aortic valve leaflets are thickened and calcified and have limited movement. We can tell the different uh, leaflets of the valve. A typical aortic valve has three leaflets, but some people are born with only two leaflets or a bicuspid valve, and so we can easily detect uh, that uh, the leaflet excursion and the mobility is reduced, and we can actually calculate by Doppler or do it by imaging and polymetry the uh, valve area of, of the valve. 
So this is a um, cross-section of the aortic valve. This is sort of if you were looking down from the head right onto the aortic uh, valve and cutting it in cross-section. So this round circle is aortic valve. The aortic valve has three leaflets, so it looks like sort of a Mercedes-Benz sign where you have a line coming down and two lines coming off, or a peace sign. And so here's one leaflet here, one leaflet here, one leaflet here. Uh, but what you see here is very bright calcification of these leaflets, and this little movement here is the opening of the valve. These leaflets should go all the way back to the valve wall, and they're not. So this is a heavily calcified, heavily stenosed aortic valve, which is hardly uh, opening. Mitral valves also can, are easily seen on echo. If they are thickened and calcified and reduced leaflet excursion, uh, we can diagnose mitral stenosis. And by polymetry, we can easily calculate the mitral valve area. Uh, there are two types of mitral stenosis. There's rheumatic mitral stenosis, which is by far the most common. And then there's rare calcific degenerative mitral stenosis. Um, they calcify the valves in different areas. So an echocardiographer can look at the valve and the shape of the valve, he can determine if it's due to rheumatic disease uh, or not. So this is from a transesophageal echo. So this is a big left atrium up here. This is the left ventricle down here. And this is the two leaflets of the mitral valve. These mitral valves should open all the way um, and then close, but they're hardly opening. And you can see that there is this kind of bowing of the, of the valve, and the leaflets are tethered together here. This is very typical of rheumatic mitral stenosis. And so you'd expect these leaflets to open up all the way. They do not. And so this is, and they're much thicker than normal, and so that's uh, typical of rheumatic uh, mitral stenosis. Aortic insufficiency, aortic regurgitation, can easily be seen by Doppler echocardiography as well. Uh, the Doppler jet can easily show the regurgitant uh, lesion, and also we can look at the valve leaflets and see if they're damaged or if there's a vegetation on it causing it. Uh, this is a typical Doppler echo, color Doppler uh, echocardiogram. So in this particular case, this is the aortic valve, this is the aorta coming off here. Uh, this is the left ventricle. Uh, this is actually the anterior leaflet of the mitral valve. And all of this blue, yellowish um, jet that's uh, starting at the aortic valve and moving across the screen is a significant amount, severe amount of aortic insufficiency. So the length of the jet, the thickness of the jet, um, all can give us an idea of the volume of blood or the severity. This would be severe aortic insufficiency by this Doppler uh, jet. Um, Anything that um, goes away from the probe um, will be colored blue, and so usually the way the probe is put, we have the regurgitant lesion going away from the probe, and you'll see a nice blue jet of the uh, blood flow going away from the probe. Mitral regurgitation, the same thing. We expect to see these blue jets going through the valve when it's closed. Remember, regurgitation always occurs when the valve is closed because it, it should be sealed shut, and so it's when the valve is closed. So Doppler will show the regurgitant flow into the left atrium. Again, you can look at the valve and see, is it thickened? Is there a vegetation on it? Are the leaflets tethered? Uh, are they torn? Are the cords torn? Uh, and you'll also be able to see what could have caused the mitral regurgitation. Was there a prior MI that could have caused it? And so here, again, is a four-chamber view. Um, here is the left ventricle on top. The right ventricle is this little triangle over here. This huge area here is the left atrium. Here is the right atrium. And as the um, uh, systole occurs, 
And as the ventricle contracts, the mitral valve should be closed. You can see when it's closed, this big blue jet goes all the way back into this very dilated left atrium. So this would be severe mitral regurgitation because the jet goes all the way back, and it's relatively um, wide. And so those would be some of the characteristics of severe mitral regurgitation. Our second question, a 55-year-old with a history of icuspid aortic valve presents with worsening dyspnea. Transthoracic echo shows calcification of the valve and a reduced valve area. Which of the following is most likely indicated? A carotid endarterectomy, aortic valve surgery, mitral valve surgery, a septal reduction therapy, or just observe and repeat the echo in the next uh, six months? Which should we do? Um, almost all of you said that we should consider aortic valve surgery. So here's one of the pearls I want to mention today. Uh, what is a class one indication for almost everything we do in cardiology? The answer is if whatever that disease is is causing symptoms. So class one indications in cardiology from anything, aortic stenosis, mitral regurgitation, aortic insufficiency, you name it, is if it's causing symptoms. So if you see a question where they say that somebody's having symptoms because of a lesion, that's a class one indication to do something about the lesion. And that's pretty much on all the guidelines. So just remember, if it's causing symptoms, usually you want to do something about it. So here's a patient with bicuspid aortic valve now having symptoms. The indication is to do something about it, and that would be surgery for the, uh, for the valve. 75-year-old male with a history of a prior MI presents with worsening dyspnea and fatigue. On exam, you detect a two out of six holosystolic murmur heard best at the apex. So what should you do next? Let's put him on a treadmill and do an exercise stress test. Let's do a transthoracic echo. Let's do a transesophageal echo. Do ankle brachial index or do a multiple gated scan or a MUGA scan or a radionucleotide ventriculogram. What would you recommend doing? Good, everyone wants to get an echo, so that's good. So again, he's having symptoms, and you hear a murmur. So those two together should be image it. So you've got a murmur, and you're having some symptoms, you want to image it. We always start with a transthoracic. Transthoracic, most of the time, will tell you what you need to know, and we don't have to do a more invasive transesophageal echo. Uh, the mitral valve actually is um, easily seen on most transthoracics. Sometimes when we want to have a clearer picture of a vegetation or something, we will then do a transesophageal, but start with a transthoracic to avoid um, any um, injury to the patient and then uh, decide if you need to do further imaging after that. So transthoracic echo is the answer. Transesophageal echo is a little bit better on certain diseases, especially endocarditis. We can pick up maybe 40, 50% of endocarditis with a transthoracic, but you'll get 80, 90 plus percent with a transesophageal. So the sensitivity of finding a vegetation on transesophageal is better, and so we'll usually use it for endocarditis. If we're concerned about an acute valvular lesion, acute valvular lesions um, present uh, with less signs. Many times you won't even hear or detect the murmur. And so if you suspect an acute lesion, we sometimes need to uh, look with transesophageal echo. It is more sensitive to finding aortic dissection with a transesophageal. Um, it's as good as CT or MR, and so transesophageal can be used if you um, are worried about uh, dissection. 
and it's the way we look for blood clots in the left atrium. So if you're going to do a cardioversion in somebody who's in atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter, you want to make sure there's no left atrial clot. Uh, we can't see those very well on transthoracic, uh, but they're very easy to be detected on transesophageal, and so it's used for that. So those are the four main reasons we use TEE. So a 65-year-old woman with diabetes and poorly controlled hypertension has severe chest pain. Chest X-ray shows a widening of the mediastinum. She states the pain radiates down her back, is ripping and stabbing in sensation. So what would you order next? Anticoagulate her with heparin, do an emergency coronary angiogram, do a transesophageal echo, have her take a barium swallow, or do fibrinolytic therapy. What should you recommend ASAP? And 80% of you want to do a transesophageal echo, and that's what you should uh, do at this point. Some sort of imaging to rule out aortic dissection. She's presenting with widened mediastinum, tearing, ripping, chest pain. Those are two of the classic things we think about aortic dissection, and so we want to make sure there's no dissection. And so the answer, if they were on here, would be either do a transesophageal, a CTA, or an MRA to look for the um, uh, dissection. Uh, many places you can get the TE a little bit quicker, and so that's why you want to do it. You don't don't want to give heparin or fibrinolytic therapy because if she's dissecting, uh, you'll worsen things uh, with bleeding. Coronary angiography may be something to consider if there is time, but aortic dissection, ascending aortic dissection is a, a surgical emergency and we need to make the dissection and some of these patients need to go to surgery right away. So that's an introduction just to imaging. We're going to go over many of those conditions in more detail, obviously, but just to give you an idea of some of the imaging, let's talk about stress testing because this is a much more common test that uh, not only cardiologists do, but a lot of uh, internists and other uh, specialties will order as well. So what are the indications for a stress test? It's if you suspect somebody has ischemic heart disease, it can increase or decrease the probability that they have ischemic heart disease. It also can risk stratify. So we can have a much better idea of prognosis or risk stratification with a stress test. Sometimes it will be used also to see if the therapy that we've done is working okay. And so we will sometimes do a stress test in patients with known disease to see if now the medical therapy or percutaneous intervention or surgery now has solved the problem. Um, and occasionally it'll also be done to look at exercise uh, uh, ability or functional capacity to come up with a um, therapy outline of uh, exercise for the patient as well. But by far the most common is suspected ischemic heart disease to increase or decrease the probability of having ischemic heart disease. We divide chest pain into three categories. Patients who have typical angina pectoris, patients who have chest pain that has some features of angina, but some that are not, we call it a typical chest pain, and those patients who clearly have symptoms that don't sound at all like the heart, and we call that non-cardiac chest pain. Um, the trouble with chest pain is that the way our nervous system is wired, we can't be 100% sure where that chest pain is coming from. So we have to put it together in a typical syndrome or a typical scenario to increase or decrease our probability that it's ischemic heart disease. So the heavy um, feeling across the chest that radiates to the uh, lower jaw into the upper arms associated with breathlessness, maybe a little bit of nausea, worsen with exertion and better with resting is an example of typical angina pectoris. If you have some of those features, but also the pain lasts longer or is shorter or happens at rest, you have some atypical features, your probability of having an ischemic cause of it is lower, and that's atypical chest pain. 
And then if somebody had an um, accident where they uh, injured their chest wall and their chest wall is painful to the touch, you can be certain that that's non-cardiac chest pain. So that helps with our pretest probability, does somebody have ischemic heart disease? A classic study, now 30-some years ago by Diamond and Forrester, tried to put this all together. They looked at both men and women, age group from 30 up to 70, and they classified people into these three categories, clearly non-cardiac chest pain, atypical chest pain, or typical angina. And they all had angiograms, and anybody who had a 70% narrowing or greater was considered positive for having coronary artery disease. So they wanted to know what was the pretest probability of having symptoms, being a male at a female at a certain age, of having significant coronary artery disease, coronary artery disease that would be at a level that you would consider intervention. So let's take our 65-year-old male who has crushing chest pain every time he runs up a flight of stairs that goes away with rest. It's associated with nausea, breathlessness, radiates to his lower jaw and to his upper arms. What is the pretest probability that that person has coronary artery disease? Well, you can see right here, that's typical angina, 65-year-old man. He's got a 94-plus percent chance of having coronary artery disease. So what do we do with that patient? We send him to the cath lab. We know the probability ahead of time is so high that a stress test is not going to help us very much because we have a very high probability he has disease. What about a 30-year-old woman who has uh, fleeting chest pains that come and go both at rest and with exertion? They're sharp. They last seconds, not associated with anything else. What is the pretest probability that this patient with either non-cardiac or maybe a typical chest pain has coronary disease? It's very, very low. The reason why we need to know this is remember there's no test in the world that's 100% predictive. And the predictability of a test is going to base, be based on the prevalence of the disease. So we have to go back four, 500 years to a mathematician called Bayes and Bayes' theorem, which we've adopted to understand pretest and post-test probabilities of testing. And the way we interpreted Bayes' uh, mathematical theorems is that the accuracy of a test depends on the prevalence of disease. So if you have the prevalence of a disease that's zero, and you have a test that's 90% accurate, uh, you're going to 9 out of 10 times have a negative test, but 10 out of, uh, 1 out of 10 times, you're going to have a false positive test. It's always going to be false positive if the prevalence is zero. On the other hand, if you've got a 100% prevalence of a disease with a 90% sensitivity, you're going to have a higher false positive rate. And so where is testing best done? It's best done in the middle. It's best done when you have a 50% pretest probability. So going back to our Diamond and Forrester analysis, the patient who you know has coronary disease, a stress test is not going to be terribly helpful. A patient that you know has an extremely low likelihood is not going to be terribly helpful. It's helpful here in the middle. So these patients who are in the 40, 50, 60% pretest probability, a positive stress test will increase that to greater than 90%. A negative stress will decrease it to less than 10%. So the indication for stress testing is in those patients who have intermediate probability of having disease, and you want to increase or decrease your probability of having that, uh, that disease. So that's just said here, the greatest accuracy is obtained when the prevalence is about 50% i.e. that middle-aged man with atypical chest pain. False positive rate is very high, as much as 20 plus percent, in patients who are unlikely to have coronary disease. So the 30-year-old uh, female with atypical chest pain, much more likely that patient's going to have a false positive test. The false negative rate is also high, as much as one out of four, in patients very likely to have coronary disease. So it's not as helpful on the extremes. And so that might be a question you might get on the boards. What is the 
the type of patient you want to do a stress test. It's the one that you sort of have an intermediate probability and you want to increase or decrease the probability of having disease. Why do we use exercise? Because it mimics patients' normal activity, it's relatively inexpensive, but it also gives additional prognostic information, and that's important as well. We're not just trying to see does the EKG change, but how far can they go on the, uh, the treadmill? Uh, what is their exercise capacity? Uh, there are a number of different things we can look at. Heart rate response, blood pressure response, length of time on the treadmill, recovery rate of the heart rate. All of these things give prognostic information independent of any imaging that we do. So we prefer exercise when we can because it gives a lot of prognostic information. So to give you an example of how it's done, here's a 12-lead EKG. Um, at the beginning of exercise, this is a normal 12-lead EKG where you see the QRSs, the T waves, and the ST segments, which are between the QRS and the T wave, are all at the uh, baseline. We look at ST segments, especially in lead V5, which is the most accurate for predicting an ischemic response with exercise. So we put the patient on the treadmill, and this is what happens in this patient with uh, treadmill exercise. Notice now that you have ST segments that are one to two millimeters below the baseline, and these are horizontally depressed. And you can see it here in V5. It's also in V4 and in V6. It's also in the inferior leads where it's even more obvious. This would be a positive stress test. Most uh, investigators use a millimeter of um, uh, horizontal or downsloping ST segment depression. You want to measure the ST segment depression at 80 milliseconds past the QRS. That's two small little boxes past the QRS. That's where the highest sensitivity is for predicting an ischemic change. So this would be a positive stress test. It has greater than one millimeter of horizontal, which you see here, or even a little bit of downsloping ST segment where it's going down here. And if we go two little boxes past the QRS, you can see it's below the baseline, and that would be a positive uh, stress test. Now, not everybody can exercise, um, and uh, some patients, uh, even if they can exercise, have EKG abnormalities at baseline that preclude reading the EKG. And so the more abnormal, or as it says here, uglier an EKG is, the less likely you're going to have an uh, interpretable EKG with stress. And so these are the EKG abnormalities that we're concerned about, listed in order from the least concerning to the ones that give us the most false uh, re responses. Nonspecific ST segment changes. If someone is on digoxin, it uh, uh, ab makes uh, stress uh, exercise abnormalities in the ST segments. A right bundle branch block, left ventricular hypertrophy, especially if it's uh, accompanied by repolarization abnormality. And if you have Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, a left bundle branch block, or paced rhythms, then you will not be able to interpret the EKG. And in those cases, if you want to do a stress test, you have to do it with imaging as well. So if a patient can exercise, do what you can do to obtain an exercise stress test because of the valuable prognostic information, but let the baseline EKG guide you if you should add uh, imaging. So here is a typical stress uh, algorithm. We'll quickly go through it. Able to exercise, yes. Resting EKG is normal, yes. The recommendation is do just an exercise stress test. You don't need imaging in those patients. If the resting EKG is normal but they can exercise, then you may need to do some imaging. So now the patient can't exercise, then we want to decide on a stress test with imaging. And we have two different varieties of exercise with imaging. We can stress the heart with a vasodilator, such as a denison, or we can stress the heart with dibutamine, which is a positive inotrope. Well, how do we choose between those? 
Well, there are some contraindications to dibutamine. If patients have uh, episodes of ventricular tachycardia, marked hypertension, dibutamine is going to make that worse. So if they have a contraindication to dibutamine, we're not going to use that. We're going to use a vasodilator. They could have a contraindication to some of the vasodilators. We use dipritamol, adenosine, or regadenosine. Um, as uh, these agents can sometimes worsen bronchospasm. And so if you have a patient who has active bronchospasm, uh, they're relatively contraindicated. These vasodilators also can sometimes uh, increase block through the AV node. So if they have high-grade uh, AV block, uh, then uh, we don't want to use those as well. And so in those indications, we're going to use dibutamine if there's no contraindication to butamine. If you have a patient who can't have dibutamine because of ventricular arrhythmias, can't have adenosine or the adenosine-like agents because of other contraindications, um, or you can't get um, good uh, imaging, uh, then we have to consider other uh, modalities, and CT angiography or MRI uh, sometimes can be useful in those rare, uh, rare cases. So you have a patient with risk factors for coronary artery disease, has chest pain, an MI has been ruled out in the ED. His baseline EKG shows left ventricular hypertrophy. The patient is able to exercise. What stress test should you order? A, a regular exercise treadmill test. B, an exercise stress test with nuclear perfusion. C, a pharmacological stress with nuclear perfusion. D, an ST-sensitive halter monitor study. Or just send him to cardiac catheterization. What would you do? So two-thirds of you want to do an exercise stress test with nuclear perfusion, and 27% uh, want to do a regular stress test. So let me just go back to the question, and I want to show a couple of things about this uh, question. So first, he's able to exercise. So if he's able to exercise, remember the rule was get him to exercise. The second is his EKG shows LVH. Remember that list of things that make the baseline EKG hard to interpret? LVH was further down on the list. So we can't just use an EKG. We have to use some uh, sort of imaging with it. And then we're looking to see, does he have any contraindications to the uh, different uh, modalities that we've, uh, that we've talked about? And uh, he doesn't really. So an exercise stress test with perfusion would be the answer. A regular exercise stress test, we need imaging because of LVH. A pharmacologic, he can exercise. We want him to exercise. And uh, he, these two um, are not going to be as helpful if you're trying to increase or decrease the probability with stress testing. Patient has severe claudication and asthma. Baseline EKG shows LVH. What type of stress test should this patient have? So before we go to the uh, questions, I want to show you a couple of things. Severe claudication, asthma, think about those, and then his baseline EKG. What type of stress test? Regular stress test, exercise stress test with nuclear perfusion imaging, an adenosine stress test with nuclear perfusion imaging, a dibutamine stress echo, or just send him to cardiac catheterization. What would you do? Seventy-four percent want dibutamine stress echo. Good. So we can't do regular stress tests. He has LVH. We can't do an exercise stress test with nuclear perfusion. He has claudication. He can't walk on the treadmill. He has asthma. Remember, I said that asthma can be exacerbated by uh, adenosine and adenosine-like products. So that might be um, a problem. He doesn't have contraindication to butamine. We didn't see anything about arrhythmias. So this would be the best uh, answer for the type of stress test that uh, he should have. 
So when do we do pharmacologic stress tests? These are necessary if a patient cannot exercise. You can use vasodilators like adenosine, dipritamol, or regadenosine, or we can use dibutamine. Again, adenosine, dipritamol, and regadenosine are a vasodilator. The contraindications are active bronchospasm, and dibutamine is a positive inotrope. Um, the contraindications are uh, significant uh, arrhythmias. Um, vasodilator therapy is particularly useful in patients who have a left bundle branch block or paste rhythms. And so in patients who have a left bundle branch block or paste rhythms, we can't really um, do um, exercise. We're going to use a adenosine, or what's used most now in most labs is regadenosine. It actually has a little bit less side effects than adenosine, and so that one's usually used um, uh, preferentially in today's day and age. So stress is induced by either exercise, if they can exercise, or a chemical means uh, by the vasodilator. And both thallium and technetium are usually used. Those um, elements will go where the blood flow is adequately perfusing the heart. And the uptake will be um, taken up by healthy um, heart cells. Uh, it will not be taken up by heart cells that are dead, or it will not be taken up in areas where there's decreased blood flow. And so that's how we can tell if there is an ischemic area. In recovery, the ischemic myocardium that had a decreased blood flow uh, will recover and will take up isotope, and so we can look at the difference between stress and recovery. We call that the reversibility. So if you have a scar, a scar is dead tissue and you give thallium, you'll not get any uptake because the tissue is dead, and it will be dead both at exercise and at stress. If you have a 95% stenosis, you won't get any thallium to the heart muscle, so you will not get any uptake. But then when you take the exercise away, uh, during recovery, you get enough blood into that area, it'll take it up, and so you'll see normal perfusion at rest but decreased perfusion at exercise. That means it's a reversible lesion, and that uh, indicates a uh, tight uh, stenosis. We also can measure LV function, so you can get an ejection fraction and look at LV function. You can do wall motion, so we can see if there's wall motion abnormalities. And we also can at times see if what appears to be scar tissue really isn't fully scarred down. This is called myocardial viability. So you may have a partial infarct, and you may have a 99% lesion in that area. So you haven't completely killed all the heart muscle there, but you're so underperfusing the heart muscle that it's not able to take up thallium. These cells go into a hibernating state. It's called hibernating myocardium. They're not dead, but they're not functional either. If you can reperfuse that area, many times you can restore function to that area. In order to determine if those cells are still alive, we need to do what's called a myocardial viability scan, and that is to uh, allow some of these tracers more time to get into that area. And if over a 24-hour period, for example, we see a lot of reversibility in what looked like a scar, then we know that there's live viable cells there, and maybe that patient will benefit from reperfusion therapy. So here's a typical um, nuclear stress test. And the way these are done is the stress images are put on the top rows and rest images are underneath. And so here's stress images, rest, stress, rest, stress, rest, stress, rest. And you just compare the uptake. The computer does it to some, some extent by counting the number of, of counts, but you can do it by eyeballing it as well. And let me just give you an example. Look at this view here. Here is a long axis view of the left ventricle. And notice on stress, uh, this wall is bright yellowish pinkish color. This wall here is hard to see and is purplish. That's under stress. When we look at the resting, notice this wall here is now much brighter and uh, purplish pinkish color. So there's clear improvement in uptake uh, on this, uh, this wall um, um, here on, on this particular one. You can go through it and you can see areas where there's mismatch, where it's better at rest than with stress. And so that would be a positive stress test and we can pinpoint where in the heart that abnormality is.
We can also do stress echo. It's um, less expensive, not by a lot, but less expensive than, than nuclear. It's a little bit more specific, but not as sensitive. So um, it doesn't pick up mild disease as a nuclear imaging uh, will, uh, but it does pick up uh, the, a significant disease uh, very well. And um, the choice of the uh, two modalities, do you do a nuclear or do you do an echo, depends a lot really on the expertise of your different uh, area. When good labs are compared one to the other, the sensitivity and specificities of stress echo and uh, nuclear stress testing is about the same. The only caveat is we tend to want to do nuclear imaging if someone has a left bundle branch block and not stress echo imaging. And the reason why is a left bundle branch block makes the whole intraventricular septum move abnormally. And what we're looking at on a stress echo is an abnormal wall motion. So if you already have abnormal wall motion at the beginning, it's going to be harder to interpret that part of the heart. So if you have a left bundle branch block, it's better to do nuclear imaging. Everything else, they're probably about, uh, about the same. So now you're experts on stress testing. What about cardiac CT and MR? These modalities are becoming more and more used, so you at least should know a little bit about when they are used. There's two types of CT scans. There's a CT scan where we look at the heart and we just want to look at how much calcium is in the coronary arteries. This is called a coronary artery calcium scan or a CAC scan. They're also called EBCT, electron beam CT uh, is the older name uh, for them. And so that's just looking at a calcium score. Uh, the radiation dose in these is low because we're just doing a couple of cuts through the heart, does not use contrast, and it's used to detect coronary calcification and to quantitate the amount of coronary calcification. Whereas CTA or CT angiography is like an angiogram. This is a test where it's many more cuts through the heart. We need a lot more radiation, so radiation exposure is significantly more. But we have to use contrast, because we have to have contrast going through the coronary arteries in order to be able to image the coronary arteries. It can also look at anatomy and uh, function of the, uh, the uh, left ventricle as well. When do we use a CTA? The current guidelines say it can be used in the evaluation of somebody with atypical chest pain. So it is recommended in certain patients for atypical chest pain. We'll go over that in a little bit more detail. The drawbacks of CTA are, again, higher radiation doses, you need contrast, and you need to have a relatively slow and regular heart rate. If you've got somebody in rapid AFib, you'll not get good pictures. As a matter of fact, many uh, protocols give patients beta blockers to slow the heart rate to an average heart rate of about 60 in order to get good pictures. And so if you can't have... If you've got a lot of ectopy or you can't get the heart rate slower, the images aren't very good. And the patients have to obviously hold their breath during imaging, so they have to be able to do that. The coronary artery calcium scan, CAC or EBCT, is mainly used to look for coronary artery calcium. And there's protocols where it can quantitate the volume of the calcium. And if you, the higher and higher the calcium score, the more likely you have vulnerable plaques, the more likely you're going to have a coronary event. And so it's a risk factor. It's a prognostic indicator. It can be used in conjunction with other cardiac risk factors to determine somebody's cardiac uh, risk. And we also know that if you do a coronary artery calcium scan and it's zero, there's no calcium, that actually puts somebody in a very, very low risk uh, group for a cardiac event. And this is the current um, breakdown of coronary artery calcium. Zero calcium score is a very low-risk patient. One to 10 is very minimal plaque, also a pretty low-risk patient. 11 to 100 means that most patients have mild atherosclerotic plaque, although it's very unlikely at that calcium score level to have a serious um, coronary uh, narrowing. 100 up to 400 is moderate plaque, and significant narrowings are certainly seen and possible in those individuals. 
Greater than 400 is extensive placking of the coronary arteries, and there's a high likelihood that there's at least one coronary artery that has a significant narrowing 70% or greater. And the, rate, the risk of having an acute coronary syndrome in this high of a, a score is about tenfold higher than somebody who doesn't have coronary artery calcium. So you can see the risk begins to go higher and higher depending on the volume of the calcium. A CTA actually can look at the coronary arteries. Here's a good example of a coronary a CT angiography, and it shows the coronary uh, artery quite well. Um, this is very helpful in patients who have normal coronary arteries, because normal coronary arteries can be seen very, very well with this. The problem is, if a patient has heavy calcification, the calcification obscures the x-rays, and we can't see luminal narrowing very well in heavily calcified arteries. So again, a CTA is better in lower-risk individuals if we don't find much. Higher-risk individuals who have extensive calcification, uh, we many times can't get a good measurement of a coronary narrowings. And so here's a patient who does not have a lot of calcium in their arteries, and you can see very nicely the um, coronary arteries as they go down through the, the myocardium. All three coronary arteries can be seen. These images can be rotated and can be looked at. And so CTA is really helpful in that lower-risk, atypical chest pain patient. You don't have enough information to go to coronary angiography. You may have an equivocal stress test. You want to know what you're dealing with. These are the type of patients that CTAs may be helpful. Here's an example of a CT scan that shows coronary artery calcification. And so here is the, the chest, the lung fields, and here is the aorta right here. And here is the left coronary artery coming off of the aorta, both the left circumflex and the left anterior descending artery. And look how heavily calcified this artery is. It's almost completely calcified. Remember, calcium is like bone. It's very, very bright, so it's very easy to see. If we did a CTA on this person, we would not be able to see inside this calcium. So I can't tell you if this is, artery is narrowed or not. And so that's the downsides of CTA. But by um, measuring all this calcium and measuring the volume, we can use it as a prognostic indicator in this uh, individual. MR can be used for cardiac function and valve function. It's also helpful for tissue characterization. So we're seeing cardiac MRI done more and more on patients with cardiomyopathies to figure out why they have the cardiomyopathy. So um, looking for infiltrative heart disease, such as amyloidosis, hemochromatosis, sarcoidosis, is very helpful with MR. Obviously looking for uh, myocardial masses. It also can help us on viability. Uh, using contrast with MR, we can determine scar tissue from viable tissue uh, as well. And here is an example of a cardiac MR. So this is the left ventricle cut in cross-section, like cutting a loaf of bread. So uh, this is the interventricular septum. This is the right ventricle. Here's the anterior wall, the inferior wall. The um, viable myocardium on an MR without contrast should be a big black void. When we give contrast, when we give gadolinium, scar tissue will pick it up and you will get this white area. So this white strip here is non-viable uh, non myocardium. What's interesting about this one, this is subendocardial scar because the epicardial scar is alive. The subendocardial scar is, is scarred. The subendocardium is scarred. So this is typical of having a non-ST segment elevation MI or uh, what we used to call a subendocardial MI where this is scar tissue right, uh, right there. PET scanning can be done. It's another way of looking at viability because uh, whatever we use, if we use um, uh, F 
DG, uh, the uh, fluorinated uh, glucose scans, or if we use the ammonia scan, uh, these are being taken up by live cells. And so we can see cells that are alive. And so if we have an area that looks like scarring and want to see if it's viable, we can do a PET scan. If we have a lot of take up, uh, then we know that that area is, is viable. It also can be used for certain infiltrative diseases. It's very useful, for example, in sarcoidosis uh, because it can be taken up by the inflammatory cells. And so we can sometimes use PET scanning to see if there's inflammation of the myocardium as well. So a 65-year-old male with a history of a myocardial infarction in the past month and congestive heart failure, EF of 30%, has a PET scan that shows viability of the anterior wall. He asks you, should he take his cardiologist's advice? And you tell him, yes, you should follow his cardiologist's advice, of course. And his advice is what? A, undergo coronary revascularization. B, wear a halter. C, get an ICD. D, get a pacemaker. Or E, have a TEE. And uh, if you've all been listening to what I've been saying about viability, that's why we use these scans. We're looking to see if there is viability in that wall. He's got viability in that wall. He's having symptoms. He's got a low EF. There is some evidence if we revascularize the anterior walls, EF's going to improve and his symptoms will get better. And so he should um, have revascularization. If his EF gets better, he may not need an ICD. So you can hold off on, on that uh, part of the um, uh, equation. What about cardiac catheterization? Um, so left heart cardiac catheterization is mainly due to look at coronary artery disease. Mortality is very, very low with a cardiac catheterization. You can also look at the um, left ventricle and the aorta in addition to look at the coronary arteries. Most common indication is to evaluate and treat coronary artery disease. It can be done through a femoral approach or the radial approach. Radial approaches are becoming very common because they have less morbidity. Complications of cardiac catheterization are bleeding into the retroperitoneum through a femoral approach. You can dissect a coronary artery with the catheter or with a wire. Uh, if you do, it could cause cardiac tamponade. And if there is a lot of cholesterol inside the aorta, you can knock some of that off, and it can embolize to other areas causing cholesterol emboli syndrome. So a patient had a coronary angiogram from a femoral artery approach immediately after she developed sinus tachycardia and severe hypotension. A 12-lead EKG is normal. Uh, STAT-CBC shows her hemoglobin is 7. What is the diagnosis? She's had an acute myocardial infarction. She has retroperitoneal hemorrhage. She's tamponading. She has a pulmonary embolism or has a tension pneumothorax. What is the most likely answer? Good, she has a retroperitoneal hemorrhage. So the EKG is normal, so it's not a MI. Um, her hemoglobin is low, so she bled somewhere, and so that's the typical area to bleed is the retroperitoneum. Uh, tamponade you can think about, but she doesn't have high neck veins, and we'll go through tamponade later, why she doesn't have tamponade. And these other things, although can happen, are pretty rare right at the time of a cardiac catheterization. So it was a retroperitoneal hemorrhage. 75-year-old woman had an angiogram three weeks ago. Over the past week, she's noticed discoloration and severe pain in her left foot. Her laboratory data shows a creatinine of 4.5, which is new, so she has a new AKI. And here is her foot. Notice the model different appearance of the skin on the foot. So what is the responsible for her renal failure? A, she has underlying interstitial kidney disease. B, contrast nephropathy. C, atherosclerosis of the renal arteries. D, an allergic reaction to the contrast. Or E, atherosclerotic embolization to the kidneys and systemic embolization at the time of the catheterization.
Great. This is cholesterol emboli syndrome with levido reticularis, where this cholesterol uh, is knocked off of the aorta. It goes to the kidneys and causes renal failure, goes to the feet and the toes. You can infarct the toes, infarct the bottom of the feet. And so it's typical uh, that, that model discoloration is typical of cholesterol emboli. emboli. Right heart catheterizations, uh, we can measure the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, which is a measure of the left atrial pressure, which represents the left ventricular end diastolic pressure. Normally, it should be less than about 12. It will increase with anything that stiffens the heart. Anything that stiffens the heart, it's going to take more pressure to put blood into the heart. So left ventricular hypertrophy, left ventricular heart, uh, failure, bad aortic stenosis, and obviously tamponade and constriction can increase it as uh, well. Um, pulmonary capillary wedge pressures correlate with symptoms. Um, once we get symptoms that are up into the uh, pressures up into the 20 range, you get dyspnea with exertion, dyspnea at rest when it's the high 20s, and when it gets up into the 30s, patients can go into pulmonary edema. Right atrial and right ventricular pressures, normal right atrial pressures are real low, usually in the four, five, six uh, millimeter of mercury range. Jugular venous distension occurs when right atrial pressures are usually greater than about uh, seven centimeters of water or about five millimeters of mercury. Increased PA pressures are usually indicative of uh, increased pressures in the right heart or right heart failure. Normal RV systolic pressures are less than 25 to 30 millimeters of mercury. So here's some examples of right heart pressures that we'll go through. So just start with what's normal. RA pressures, millimeters of mercury, are normally less than 5. PA pressures are up to about the mid-20s, over um, the uh, 8, 9, 10 range or so. Wedge pressures are less than 12 uh, with a normal systemic uh, blood pressure. So let's go over these um, five different uh, hemodynamic examples and see what they tell us. Let's start with example 2. Example two is a RA pressure that's elevated at 18, PA 32 over 18, wedge pressure is 17 in a patient who is hypotensive. So what do you notice in this particular case? The RA, PA diastolic, and wedge pressure are all equal. Whenever you see high but equal pressures with low systemic pressures, this combination is very classic for tamponade. So think of tamponade with equilibration of all the diastolic blood pressures and a low um, uh, low systemic uh, pressures. That's typical of tamponade. Let's look at number two. Number two is a high RA pressure of 15, but the PA pressure is normal, 21 over 11. Wedge pressure is normal at 10, but the patient is very um, hypotensive. So what's causing mostly high RA pressure? So here you can see the RA is much higher than the wedge pressure, and the um, systemic blood pressure is low. So something is preventing uh, blood from getting into the, the right ventricle. Something's increasing the pressure into the right ventricle, and this is typical of an RV infarct. Patients who have an inferior wall infarct, the uh, right coronary artery also feeds blood vessels to the RV. If that infarcts, you get an RV infarct, and uh, that can cause very high right atrial pressures. And the RV is now infarcted, so it's not pumping very well. So low cardiac output to the left, you have low systemic uh, pressures. Example number four, RA pressure is very high at 18. PA pressures are now uh, moderately elevated, 40 over 30. Wedge pressure is elevated at 30, uh, but the patient is uh, very hypotensive systemically. So what's causing all the pressures to be quite high, including the filling pressure of the LV with a low uh, systemic uh, blood pressure? So RA pressure is high, but the wedge pressure is extremely elevated with a low systemic pressure. This is basically cardiogenic shock. So patients who are in cardiogenic shock, usually what that means is a big MI or advanced uh, systolic heart failure um, in, in, in those type of patients. And you're going to expect the very high filling pressures with the low cardiac uh, output. 
Let's look at example uh, number five here, very high RA pressure, extremely high PA pressure. So now we're in the severe pulmonary hypertension range of 90 over 32, but the wedge pressure is also quite high at 30 uh, with a uh, blood pressure that is relatively normal. Uh, so what could be this pattern? So this is pulmonary systolic pressures are very high, but the wedge pressure is also high with systemic blood pressures that are normal. And so, again, you have to think carefully about this. What does the wedge pressure give us? It gives us the left atrial pressure. And that would be the left ventricular end diastolic pressure uh, with the one example would be if you have severe mitral stenosis. If you have severe mitral stenosis, LA pressure is going to be huge. PA pressures are going to be very high. It's going to translate all the way back to the right atrium. But the left ventricle is still pumping okay. Left ventricle is normal, so systemic pressures are usually normal. And so that example is typical of... Um, pulmonary uh, of uh, pulmonary hypertension due to mitral stenosis. But compare that to number six. So same numbers. RA pressure is 18. PA pressure is very high, 90 over 32. The difference here is wedge pressure is now 10. It's normal with systemic pressures that are normal. And so this tells us that where this block in the series is at a different place. So here the blood going into the left atrium uh, and the left atrium going to the ventricle is normal. Um, but we have severe pulmonary hypertension. Here we have extremely high LA pressures. So what could be the cause of number six, where pulmonary artery pressures are very high, but the wedge pressure is normal? This is idiopathic primary arterial hypertension, or PAH. So this is um, uh, that rare disease of pulmonary artery uh, hypertension uh, that is the cause of, uh, of this one. And so that's one of the things you really want to look at very carefully is between uh, the wedge pressure and the pulmonary pressures. Normal wedge pressures indicate that we're now having a problem in the pulmonary veins and the pulmonary circuit. High wedge pressures means we have a problem with the LV or the mitral valve. And so that's where you're going to pinpoint where the circuit is, depending on what the wedge pressure um, looks like. We can also do uh, myocardial biopsies to uh, determine why someone has a cardiomyopathy. It can be useful to rule out hemochromatosis, amyloidosis, uh, adriamycin or doxorubicin toxicity, rejection of transplanted hearts, Trouble is a negative biopsy is not always helpful because some of these diseases can be patchy, and so you sometimes can't actually catch the, the disease, but many times it can uh, give a diagnosis. Uh, alcoholic cardiomyopathies, uh, there are no findings on biopsy which can determine it. It's based on a history. So a 35-year-old woman comes with substernal pressure lasting from a few minutes to as long as four hours. She does not get pain with activity, but occasionally had it when lying down. Uh, she has hypertension and obesity, which is the following is true. She has a greater than 50% chance of having coronary disease. B, an exercise stress test would have a high degree of accuracy in this individual. C, exercise duration would not be a useful in predicting prognosis. And D, nuclear perfusion imaging would improve the accuracy of the exercise study. Uh, nuclear perfusion imaging would improve the accuracy. So why is that the answer? She's a 35-year-old with atypical chest pain, so she doesn't have a greater than 50%. Her pretest probability is down in the teens. An exercise stress test would not have a high degree of accuracy. It would have a low degree of accuracy because her pretest probability is low. Exercise duration is very useful in predicting prognosis, but in this particular answer, um, you, we would need to improve the accuracy by um, doing more than one test if we were going to do a stress test. Okay, a 57-year-old man with lung cancer presents with 24 hours of increasing dyspnea, pressure is low, 85 over 40, neck veins are elevated, 
right heart pressures are as follows. RA pressure, 21, high. PA pressure, 45 over 20. Pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, 21. What's the likely diagnosis? He had an embolism, myocardial infarction, superior vena cava syndrome. He has tamponade. He has a pneumonia. You all know the answer to this one because I told it to you already. Right, good. Tamponade, equalization of diastolic blood pressures. If you ever see equalization of high diastolic blood pressures, RA, RV diastolic, PA diastolic, wedge pressure, they're all within one millimeter of each other. Tamponade until proven otherwise. That's tamponade. So that's the most likely diagnosis in this uh, individual. Good. So in key point, cardiac tamponade, diastolic blood pressures are equal in all four chambers. 63-year-old has effort-induced chest pain. She's on aspirin, beta blocker, and a statin on a treadmill. She does four METs of activity. Heart rate's 110 at peak, and she has her typical pain. EKG at rest and at peak exertion follow. Here's her resting EKG. Looks pretty normal. Here's her peak stress EKG. Does anybody notice any differences? So what do we do? Let's just reassure the patient. It's a low-risk treadmill. B, repeat the test with nuclear imaging to improve accuracy. D, uh, just do secondary prevention like you're doing. D, maybe she should get corneal angiography. E, send her to a psychiatrist for an anxiety disorder. We all know what to do, right? She's having symptoms. Symptoms at four METs, which is hardly much work at all. She has a very positive stress test. It's time for that angiogram. Good. So we're going to refer her to angiography because it's not a low-risk uh, treadmill. She's in the age group where she already had a pretty high pretest probability, and we have significant ST7 depression, especially in those inferior leads. She got her chest pain. She got it at a low level of activity, less than or only up to four METs, uh, which is not much activity at all. And so she's somebody who's having symptoms despite good medical therapy, um, and then you go to angiography. And that's one of the key points to think about. Um, some patients who are having symptoms, if the symptoms are mild at high exercise level, the answer is first treat them with optimal medical therapy. And it's only when they fail optimal medical therapy or, in a case like this, high-risk features because she's having symptoms at low levels with therapy that you send them to the cath lab. So let's talk a little bit about the physical exam. Uh, again, this may be part of a clinical scenario that you will um, see, and uh, so uh, they'll help you to determine what the... Um, uh, diagnosis might be. A pulsus paradoxus is an um, inspiratory fall of systolic blood pressure. Remember, it just exaggerates the normal. And you're going to see this in patients with tamponade, but you can also see it in bad asthma or an intention pneumothorax. And this is just an example of the fall in, insp in, um, uh, in aortic pressures with inspiration. You know, normally there is this um, variation of expiration inspiration, but the pulses is going to exaggerate it. It's going to be greater than 10 to 20 millimeters of mercury with a pulses. A pulsus bisphyrians or a bifid arterial pulse is a double uh, pulse. Um, you see it mainly with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, where you get a strong pulse, which then falls off, followed by a little bit of weaker pulse. We also see it with aortic regurgitation. Pulsus alternans is where you have a strong pulse, weak pulse, strong pulse, weak pulse. So you can see it with bigeminy if you have uh, ventricular or atrial bigeminy, but also severe LV dysfunction, you know, where the heart is rocking back and forth. You can see it sometimes in severe aortic stenosis. 
Aortic stenosis, which is very severe, it'll take a lot longer for the blood to get out of the heart, and so you'll see that the um, uh, pulse is uh, delayed in the carotid, so there's a delayed uh, pulse. If the heart is failing, it'll also be a weak uh, pulse, and so you're looking for this uh, decreased rise in time and volume of the carotid for severe aortic stenosis. Aortic dissection can sometimes give you asymmetric pulses, uh, where you sometimes will have normal ones in the upper extremities and lose them in the lower extremities. But remember, peripheral arterial disease also can have absent pulses as well. Let's talk briefly about the jugular veins. The jugular veins have two main waveforms, an A wave and a V wave. The A wave is when the atrium contracts. The V wave is when the ventricle contracts. And so that's how you can see the two, two waveforms. Um, the C wave, don't worry about. You'll hardly ever see it. That's just uh, some interference of the carotid artery, uh, blood flow in the carotid artery. Uh, but it's mainly the A wave when the atrium contracts and the V wave when the ventral contracts. And then sometimes we'll look at how well uh, the descent is, the X descent after the A wave and the Y descent after the uh, uh, V wave to try to help with some diagnoses. You can get very large A waves when you have tricuspid stenosis or pulmonic stenosis or sometimes with a severe right ventricular hypertrophy. And sometimes you'll see what are called canon A waves. These indicate that you have AV dissociation. And what's happening is the atrium is contracting against a closed tricuspid valve. And so instead of the blood going into the right ventricle, it shoots up the uh, jugular vein. And so you can see it in ventricular tachycardia when you have AV dissociation or third-degree heart block when you have AV dissociation. Occasionally, we'll see it in uh, ventricular pacing uh, when we get um, a VA um, uh, uh, pacing um, with, in patients with heart block. So here's an example of somebody who has ventricular tachycardia. And if you look very carefully, you can march P waves through this um, ventricular tachycardia. And by marching the P waves, A, we know it's ventricular tachycardia, but occasionally, like right here, uh, the P wave is going to be um, uh, an atrial contraction when the tricuspid valve is closed. And you'll see that wave shoot up into the neck, and those are called canon A waves. And you can diagnose both ventricular tachycardia and AV dissociation if you have it. Here's somebody with third degree heart block, and so a nice junctional rhythm, but you see the P waves just marching through. And again, if the P wave happens, or with the atrial contraction happens when the tricuspid valve is closed, you're going to see that uh, big canon A wave. So um, the X and Y descents, people like to talk about these. I don't think you'll ever see a question about this on the exam because there's too much overlap. But just to go through it, if you have a very rapid X and Y descent, um, that's typical of constrictive pericarditis. If you lose the Y descent, so the Y descent is gone, that's tamponade. And so it sometimes can be picked up on physical exam, but because there's so much overlap, again, I don't think you'll be questioned on it, but that's the things to think about. So rapid X and Y descents, think constriction. Uh, you uh, lose the Y descent, think uh, tamponade. And this is uh, just an example of the things that elevate the neck veins. And so if you can all memorize this by tomorrow, you'll have it down. No, I'm just kidding. This is just for your reference to look at this, uh, to think about these. I'm just going to point out a couple of things. And that is that large V waves you'll sometimes see. So the V wave is when the ventricle is contracting. So what typically makes a large V wave is the right ventricle contracts, but the tricuspid valve isn't all the way closed. It's an incompetent valve. And so you not only get blood going out of the right ventricle into the pulmonary circuit, you're getting a lot of TR going back up the neck. And so you see this huge V wave. So huge V waves think anything that causes tricuspid regurgitation. 
large A waves, think of the atrium contracting against a closed tricuspid valve. Those are the cannon A waves or um, you know, a, 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 a atrium that is contracting against a very non-compliant uh, uh, right ventricle. Think about those. And then again, constriction versus tamponade. X and Y descents plummet, think constriction, lose the Y descent, think tamponade. If you just remember those things, that's all they're probably going to ask you about neck veins. So a patient comes with complete heart block. What pattern of neck vein elevation would you expect to see? Complete heart block. So A, absent A waves and slow Y descent. B, large A waves and V waves. B, rapid X and Y descents. D, cannon A waves. Or E, distended neck veins with no pulsatile activity. You all know it. I just told you. Complete heart block. What happens when the atrium contracts? Perfect. Cannon A waves. Exactly right. So cannon A waves because you're having complete heart block. Sometimes the atrium is contracting at the wrong time in the cardiac cycle. The tricuspid valve is closed. You get a cannon A wave. 45-year-old, several days of fever and tachypnea, IV drug use, large V waves in the JVP, three out of six holostatic murmur at the left sternal border that increases in intensity on inspiration. A thoracic, transthoracic echo will show what of the following. A, he's got aortic stenosis. B, he's got an anterior wall motion abnormality. C, moderate to severe tricuspid regurgitation with a vegetation on the valve. D, tamponade. Or E, pulmonic stenosis. Remember, use all the information that they gave you on these questions because there'll be hints, even if you can't remember what the murmur is from. He's got that uh, IV drug use and fever. It's uh, going to be tr tr tricuspid regurgitation with the vegetation. So big V wave, again, think anything that causes tricuspid regurgitation. Then just a few things on heart sounds. So uh, normal mitral motion is shown here. Here is the left ventricle. Here is the left atrium. Here is a nice opening and closing mitral valve. It opens, A wave closes, so you see this nice flapping of the mitral valve. The mitral valve is the closure, or S1 is the closure of the mitral and tricuspid valves. They close simultaneously, so S1 is almost always one sound. Sometimes in younger kids, you can sometimes hear a split S1, but that's unusual. And the changes in intensity of S1 reflect whatever process is closing the valve. So if you have a prolonged PR interval, um, and uh, the uh, atria is contracting long uh, time before um, uh, uh, it normally would, prolonged uh, um, uh, uh, before the, from the atrium to when the um, QRS occurs, that'll decrease the intensity of the S1 because it has more time to close. Much regurgitation will obscure S1. You just won't hear it at all. Acute aortic regurgitation many times will cause the mitral valve not to open all the way, so it'll be decreased in intensity. And if the valve is severely calcified and can't open all the way, it's not going to close very loudly, so it's going to be um, uh, decreased intensity as well. Increased intensity, think mitral stenosis. Mitral stenosis, unless it's very severe, usually um, has a louder S S1 or a very short PR interval where uh, the atrium is contracting and the valve is still wide open, sometimes hyperdynamic LV function. But the one to think about of an increased S1, think mitral stenosis, that's not terribly severe. A lost S1, think of mitral regurgitation. 
S2 is closure of the aortic and the pulmonic valves, uh, uh, so that's um, after the uh, ventricle has uh, ejected uh, blood, uh, and that's um, uh, usually you'll hear distinct A2s and P2s uh, because of a slight mismatch between when the aortic and the pulmonic valves close, and so we can get physiologic splitting. Remember, with inspiration and expiration, you increase and decrease right-sided filling. That's going to either increase or delay the time when the right ventricle empties, and so you should normally hear this nice inspiratory expiratory change of A2 and uh, P2. Uh, there are times when you can get persistent splitting of S2, where it widens even further on uh, inspiration. That's usually seen in anything that delays outflow of the right ventricle, like a right bundle branch block or pulmonic stenosis. Sometimes you'll also um, uh, uh, not be able to hear it very well in patients who have very um, uh, uh, have problems with um, uh, closure, early closure of the aortic valve, such as in patients with severe MR. But it's mainly right bundle branch block and pulmonic stenosis that gives wide splitting of S2. If you hear a click that's associated with it, so if there's a systolic click, especially if that click comes and goes with inspiration and expiration, and you have a wide splitting of uh, S2, uh, A2, and P2, that's typical of pulmonic stenosis. Paradoxically split S2, instead of the increase and decrease with inspiration and expiration, it goes the other way. Paradoxically split S2, it's almost always you're going to see with left bundle branch block. And so a left bundle branch block is going to change how the ventricles are um, contracting uh, because of the change in electrical systems. So a paradoxically split S2 is almost always due to a left bundle branch block. Sometimes you'll get it with a um, very severe aortic stenosis as well. And if you ever see a scenario where they say there's fixed splitting, where the splitting is fixed, inspiration, expiration, fixed splitting, they almost always are referring to a large atrial septal defect. So a secundum atrial septal defect is associated with fixed splitting of S2. And so here's a nice little graphic that shows this in uh, more detail. So with inspiration, expiration, you get P2 going out, coming in. This is normal physiologic splitting of S1 and S2. And so this is what you expect to hear with inspiration and expiration. Here's a widely split uh, where it never gets close together and you can hear it more easily further away. A lot of people confuse this with an S3, but it's the um, intensity of it that makes it a widely split S, uh, S2. Um, think of right bundle branch block, think of pulmonic stenosis with this. And here is paradoxical splitting um, where the um, uh, left ventricle is delayed and this is almost always a left bundle branch block. So paradoxical splitting, think left bundle branch block. Wide splitting, think right bundle branch block or PS, and fixed splitting, not shown on here, think ASD. Just remember those three things, and you've got all of your splitting. The pulmonic ejection sound I mentioned is with congenital pulmonic stenosis. It's a clicking sound, sometimes with a little bit of an outflow murmur. It can completely disappear with inspiration. And so this is neat when you hear it. You'll hear it, and then it'll disappear, and it'll come back and disappear. Uh, that's typical of PS. You'll hear it in kids with PS. And so um, it's the only right-sided sound that um, uh, basically disappears or, or becomes very soft in inspiration. Third heart sound is a filling sound of the left ventricle. It is normal in hyperdynamic circulation, so normal in children, normal in pregnancy. But in patients who have left ventricular heart disease, it's a very bad prognostic indicator. So it indicates a worse prognosis in patients with LV uh, dysfunction. The fourth heart sound is also a filling sound of the left ventricle. It occurs when the atrium contracts and pushes blood into a non-compliant ventricle. Anything that makes the left ventricle non-compliant 
ischemia, aortic stenosis, mitral regurgitation, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, heart uh, uh, hypertrophy, uh, you'll hear an S4. You won't hear it if the atrium doesn't contract. So atrial fibrillation, you no longer have atrial contracting. So an S4 will not be there when an atrial contracts. And many times you won't hear it with mitral stenosis uh, because the left ventricle is, is perfectly compliant. Uh, it's just hard to get blood into it. So you usually won't hear it with mitral stenosis. Okay, so a young patient presents with a second heart sound that does not vary with respiration. EKG shows RVH and right atrial enlargement. What's her diagnosis? Mitral stenosis, aortic stenosis, ventricular or atrial septal defects, or pulmonic stenosis. So what is the answer? Great. So you remembered I said fixed splitting, ASD. That's the only thing that really causes fixed splitting is an ASD. So just so I'm sure you know it, a 22-year-old has mild dyspnea, 3 out of 6 ejection murmur at the upper sternal border. You notice fixed splitting of S2. Which does she have? Quick, you know the answer? ASD. I'll wait for you to answer. Come on. They like asking fixed splitting on the, on the test, so now you know it. It's an ASD. <laughs> Good. All right. A preoperative evaluation, which of the following has the highest risk? An S3, an S4, a left bundle branch block, a right bundle branch block, or left ventricular hypertrophy? Which patient is going to be at the highest risk? Which has the worst prognosis? S3, good. So S3 by far on physical exam has the worst prognosis of all of these others. So if someone has an S3, that has the worst prognosis. Good. And we will talk a little bit more about murmurs, but we'll do that in valvular heart disease. All right, so we're going to get more, I think, into the meat of cardiology now. We've really gone over some imaging. We've gone over a little bit of EKGs, a little bit of echo. We've gone over a little bit of heart sounds. Let's put it all together in the different um, types of um, heart disease that you will see. And, and certainly one of the most common is coronary artery disease and myocardial ischemia. So let's go through that first. Let's talk about angina. Angina is just simply the mismatch of oxygen supply and oxygen demand. So you can get angina either way. Decreased supply, bad um, anemia or coronary artery blockages, increased demand on the heart, hypertensive crisis, all of these things can lead to uh, chest pain that is angina. We classify it as either stable or unstable. Stable angina is usually angina that is reproducible at a particular workload. So patients who have a known coronary stenosis, they can exercise up to a certain level. Every time they get to that level, they get some chest pain. They stop exercising and it goes away. If it's highly reproducible, we'll call that chronic stable angina. Chronic stable angina is usually due to a fixed stenosis. It's usually due to a non-inflamed non-active, stable, somewhat concentric, calcified plaque. Whereas unstable angina is angina that is now going to occur um, at much lower workloads, um, sometimes at rest, uh, sometimes uh, happens suddenly where there was no angina before. And usually this means something has happened to the coronary plaque. It has rapidly expanded. It has ruptured, it has become inflamed. A coronary thrombus is associated with it. And so there's a whole new level of decreased oxygen supply, which usually is unstable angina. One thing to remember is that um, not everybody who has angina is going to have ischemic changes on the EKG. Um, so only about 20% of patients um, with ischemic ST segment changes 
will actually have angina. So you can have what we call silent ischemia, where you can have clear ischemia, um, but patients will continue to exercise. They don't have angina to stop them. We see this a lot of time on stress tests. Stress tests um, that are frequently positive are not associated necessarily with symptoms. And so silent ischemia or clear ischemic changes on a stress test without angina is relatively common, um, but it still has the same bad prognosis if you're having easily induced ischemia. So here's an idea of a stable plaque. Uh, here is a coronary artery. Here's the lumen of the artery. Here is the endothelial surface. Here is the medial surface. And here there's this large lipid pool, this concentric lipid pool, but there's a very thick fibrous cap over this lipid pool. And so if this is narrowing the artery to any extent, that can cause stable angina. Uh, but this is a stable plaque because there's no signs of um, breakdown of the fibrous cap over the plaque. And here is the sign of a ruptured plaque. Here is the lumen of the artery. Here you can see cholesterol that's in the wall of the artery, but there's been a rupture of the fibrous cap. It caused a thrombus, which unfortunately completely occluded this artery. This is all thrombus, thrombus that ruptured into the plaque and then caused propagation of the thrombus. And that's the typical cause of a myocardial infarction where there is um, breach of the fibrous cap. There's exposure of these tissue factors to the circulation. These tissue factors are highly thrombotic. The thrombosis then occludes the artery and can lead to acute myocardial infarction. The problem is that you can get rupture of plaques that are not terribly occlusive. So you can have a plaque that's only 10% narrowing the coronary artery, uh, but that plaque will um, be breached and will rupture, and you can get a rapid accumulation of clot in the artery, which could occlude the artery. So this is why most patients who come in with acute myocardial infarction will tell you they had no symptoms of chronic angina before the infarction uh, because they didn't have an occlusive lesion to cause um, angina. And so that's where uh, a plaque that can be stable for years can suddenly become unstable and can lead to an acute coronary syndrome. Number of things that can determine prognosis in coronary artery disease. The first is LV function. This is probably the most powerful risk factor in um, cardiology. So the uh, worse LV function, the worse prognosis. And we usually measure that by an ejection fraction. So the lower the ejection fraction, the worse the prognosis. And this is why anyone who has an acute coronary syndrome, it's recommended that we measure cardiac function. So cardiac function is mandated to be measured in everybody who has an acute coronary syndrome. The second thing that can give us good prognosis is exercise capacity, usually measured in metabolic equivalents. And so it's highly predictive of prognosis. Somebody who has less than four metabolic equivalents, that's a poor prognosis. Now, four metabolic equivalents is not doing very much activity at all. Between four and 10 is doing simple household chores like sweeping the floor, maybe walking up one flight of stairs, you know, maybe doing normal activities. Greater than 10 is doing high-level exercise. Um, but less than four usually gives a bad prognosis, and that's even doing some daily activities. Uh, you get tired and can't do them. And then the severity of angina also has some prognosis, not as good as LV function and exercise cap capacity, but the severity of angina does as well. So the more severe angina, the worse the prognosis uh, as well. So it's recommended that uh, all patients have some sort of risk assessment. The uh, most recent guidelines looking at risk came out at the end of 2013. And the 2013 uh, guidelines recommend that some sort of risk evaluation should be calculated in all asymptomatic adults um, even without a history of coronary heart disease. You should do some sort of risk assessment. 
and they recommend to use one of the available scoring systems. Most people use the American Heart Association, American Cardi College of Cardiology, Atherosclerotic Cardiovascular Disease Calculator. That's the newest one that was put out in 2013. Um, it's very similar to the Framingham and the Reynolds score that's been used as well, and those can be still used as well. The difference between the AHAACC new calculator is it's a a calculator that pooled together um, a number of major um, risk groups. So it uses Framingham, but it uses um, uh, three other major um, uh, pooled cohorts as well. And so it's thought to be a more robust equation, and it has a lot more African Americans and women in it, so it's thought to be a better uh, calculator. But it basically it takes Framingham and has expanded Framingham. The point again is what the guidelines say is that every adult should have at some point in time an evaluation of their risk. Here is the AHA ACC risk calculator. Many of you probably have already downloaded it onto your phone. Uh, that's where I have it, but it's a very simple thing to um, do. And you just put in uh, risk factors, male and uh, female, how old they are, if they're African-American or, um, or Caucasian, their total cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, systolic blood pressure, if they're on treatment for high blood pressure or not, if they have diabetes or not, and if they smoke or not. And you add up um, all of these to get the risk assessment. And the calculator will give you two different areas of risk assessment. It will give you the 10-year cardiovascular risk, um, and it will compare it to an average 10-year risk for somebody your age with optimal risk factors. And then if you're under age 60, it will give a lifetime risk, and will also give a lifetime risk for somebody at age 50 who had everything perfect, what their lifetime risk would be. So if you're at age 50 and your systolic blood pressure is below 110 and your total cholesterol is below about 1. 60 or 150 and your HDL is above 50 and you have no diabetes and no smoking, you can have as low as a 5% um, lifetime risk. So this is kind of the ideal person that probably doesn't exist, but the ideal person that they're comparing it to. And you'll see a lifetime risk, again, if you're under age um, 60. And here's the 10-year risk and what the 10-year risk would be if you had optimal, um, optimal levels. And so it gives you that information. Most people just look at the 10-year risk because we make decisions based mainly on the 10-year risk. The 10-year risk is what the guidelines say to make decisions on. And for the 2013 guidelines, they basically say that if your 10-year risk is 7.5% or greater, you fit into one of the categories of patients that have shown benefit from statins. And so it's reasonable to treat those patients with statins. And so just remember that 7.5 in the new ACC AHA guidelines, it puts you into one of the groups where statin therapy has been shown to be effective. And so they say consider statin therapy in those um, patients. Um, it also can be used to determine the aggressiveness of treatment, and we'll go over that in a little bit as well. The old Framingham uh, risk score and many studies have used um, this definition of risk. Patients who are low risk have a less than 10% 10-year risk, intermediate 10 to 20%, and high risk greater than 20%. Uh, many groups and many uh, experts still use this um, uh, variables um, in, in risk. Um, so just remember those numbers as well as um, risk assessments. But again, the ACCHA guideline says that if you're 7.5% 10 or greater, you fit a group of people that have benefited from statins. That's the whole point of the 7.5. Recommended assessments are you should ask everybody about their family history of premature CVD. Uh, this is anybody in the immediate family, siblings or parents who've had a cardiovascular event under age 60. Do a standard lipid profile, usually that's a fasting lipid panel. Um, if you have patients who have significant hypertension or diabetes, it's usually recommended to do a, a, a baseline EKG. 
And the guidelines do say that there are some other um, testing that is reasonable to consider if you want to further evaluate risk. One of those is an ankle brachial index. Um, so it's not a mandate that you should do it. They're just saying it's a reasonable test to do in patients where you want to um, consider um, further therapy in patients who may be at intermediate uh, risk. It's also said that a coronary artery calcification score, or, or CAC, is also reasonable in patients who are in this intermediate risk group. And the reason they say it's reasonable is if it's going to change your therapy. So let's say you've got somebody who's right around 7, 7.2% 10-year risk. They're not quite at the uh, statin level, uh, but you're still concerned about risk factors. If you do a coronary artery calcium score and it's greater than 400, that gives you another high-risk feature. You may decide that you're going to treat that patient. And so usually most experts say you do ankyl brachial index or coronary artery calcium score if the results of the test are going to allow you to change therapy. If they're going to allow you to change therapy, in other words, put them into an intermediate or into a higher risk group, then it's reasonable to do it. If it's not going to change therapy, then it's probably not worth doing. So what the guidelines say specifically, if you have a patient over age 40, diabetes, no other risk factors, and so you're really wondering how aggressive you should be in treating them, should you put them on a statin, a coronary artery calcium score may help you decide on therapy or not. Remember, a coronary artery calcium score is just doing the volume of coronary artery calcium. It's not a CTA. CTA is where you're given contrast, slowing the heart rate, doing a CT angiogram. This is just a quick CT scan looking at calcium score. It's only used to put a patient in a different risk category. Um, it's not the full angiogram. And so the radiation exposure is lower, and it can be used as a prognostic uh, indicator. What's not recommended in the guidelines is in uh, most patients do any advanced lipid uh, testing, doing apolipoproteins, doing particle size, density, they were not recommended by the guidelines. And the reason why they were not recommended by the guidelines is studies have not based treatment on these, and so it's unclear if that's going to change treatment. So these are usually just done by um, lipid experts who are looking for genetic abnormalities or for reasons that um, uh, lipids are not responding to therapy, but they're not recommended as standard evaluation for patients, nor is doing genotype testing uh, recommended as a standard Natriuretic peptide measurement, unless you have signs and symptoms of heart failure, are not a screening test. C-reactive protein can be measured, but again, it's not recommended in high-risk patients because in high-risk patients, it's not going to change your treatment. It's also not recommended in low-risk patients because it's not going to change your treatment. It's again situated in that intermediate risk group where it may change your treatment. So just like a coronary artery calcium score, an ankle brachial index, if you think it's going to put them into a higher risk category um, that may do treatment, then a C-reactive protein might be reasonable in those individual patients. Not recommended is uh, standard screening echoes. You need to have signs or symptoms for an echo. Um, it's not recommended to do these arterial flow studies looking for endothelial dysfunction uh, or measuring arterial stiffness. Um, these are usually done more as research um, uh, studies and to do stress tests in low or even intermediate risk patients who are completely asymptomatic. Um, in those individuals, again, the false positive test is thought to be too high. And so if you have a low or low intermediate risk who are truly asymptomatic, good functional capacity, doing a standard screening stress test is not recommended in those uh, groups. Um, 
And again, coronary artery calcification uh, is not recommended in very low-risk patients. It's in that intermediate ones where it's going to change therapy. And then here's the one to remember is CT angiography. So where is CT angiography recommended from the guidelines? CT angiography is recommended in patients who are at um, risk for coronary disease and have atypical symptoms. So CT angiography by the guidelines is not recommended in truly asymptomatic patients. So it tends to be that patient who has a lowish pretest probability, they're having some atypical symptoms, you may or may not have done a stress test, the stress test may have been equivocal, that's when it's recommended in those individual patients. So the guidelines say it's not recommended in asymptomatic patients. It has to be patients where you're evaluating usually atypical chest pain um, in, for a CT angiogram. So how do we modify risk? Well, we look at the risk factors, and those are listed here. There's the unmodifiable risk factors like age and sex, family history, modifiable risk factors like dyslipidemia, smoking, hypertension, diabetes. And there's other risk factors that um, uh, contribute to risk, uh, including chronic stress, uh, obstructive sleep apnea, sedentary lifestyle, um, CKD, proteinuria. Uh, these are all factors that can add to, uh, to risk. Not all of them are in the risk calculator. The ones that are in the risk calculator are the ones that in multivariate analysis have clearly been shown to be independent predictors of risk. But the reason to recognize some of these other risk factors is they may be tiebreakers, if you will, in your patient who's right on the borderline. So if you've got a patient who has a 7% 10-year risk by the ACC AHA risk calculator, but they also have CKD with proteinuria, um, and that may tell you that they have more risk than the calculator is telling you, and you may want to start a therapy even though they don't quite fit one of the statin groups yet. So use these other risk factors as a way of modifying your initial risk assessment, and it can help you determine how you're going to do risk. So you have a 55-year-old man. Which of the following factors is the most predictive of having a coronary artery disease? A, an LDL of 120. B, a fasting blood glucose of 160. C, a 20-pack year smoking history, but he stopped five years ago. D, an EKG that shows LVH, or E, his father died of an MI at age 68. Which is the most predictive of having coronary disease? Which is, the, in other words, the uh, most potent risk factor in this individual? Okay, so we have a number of different answers here. Turns out the right answer is going to be his active diabetes. So the fasting blood glucose of 160, Diabetes is probably the most potent risk factor, followed very closely by active cigarette smoking. Now, notice I said active cigarette smoking. This guy stopped five years previously. Within about one to two years, the risk that smoking gives for coronary artery disease actually goes away. So the fact that he stopped smoking puts that risk factor uh, much lower. So in this individual, it's the diabetes, which is the most <clears throat> potent uh, risk factor for him. 30-year-old has a BMI of 34.5, so that's at the edge of class 1 to class 2 obesity. Family history of premature coronary artery disease, has her annual visit with a blood pressure of 120 over 80, and she has no complaints. So what should you recommend? Coronary artery calcium scoring, an exercise treadmill test, right heart cath to see what her PA pressures are, weight loss counseling, or do a stress echo.
Good, everybody says that we should take her risk factor and modify it, so weight loss counseling. That's good because um, she doesn't have any other risk factors. Her blood pressure is under control. Her main risk factor is her obesity, so there's really no compelling indication to do other testing but focus on the um, one risk factor that we can make some benefit. This was also from the um, uh, lipid uh, guidelines that came out in 2013. The lipid guidelines recognize that there are four major groups of patients who have clearly been shown to benefit from statin therapy. So memorize these four statin groups. You already know them. They're the obvious ones. The first is if you have clinical atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So clinical atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease you, means you've had a clinical coronary event. You had an angiogram, you had a stent, you had an MI, you've had unstable angina, you've had a clinical coronary event, or you've had a clinical cerebral vascular event, TIA or a stroke, or clinical peripheral vascular event, aortic aneurysm, claudication, et cetera. So you have to have clinical atherosclerotic disease. That uh, puts you into a statin group. The second is if you have a very high LDL cholesterol, defined here as 190 milligrams per deciliter or greater. The reason why they chose this group is that a vast majority of these patients likely have some sort of genetic abnormality, either familial hypercholesterolemia or mixed combined hyperlipidemia that raises the LDL high. This is greater than 95th percentile LDL for the American population. So just taking that very high, you know, 5% of people who have very high LDLs, they have benefited from statins. The third is diabetes. Now, the guidelines don't just say diabetes. They actually define diabetes in a particular group. Why do they define ages 40 to 75, LDL 70 to 189? Well, the LDL one's the easy one first. If it's 190 or greater, you were in group two. So that's why they defined it up to 189. And the reason they start at 70 is because none of the statin trials that had statin therapy and diabetes randomized patients with LDLs less than 70. So it's possible that if your LDL is 69, you might benefit, but because the statin trials didn't randomize people below that, they needed outcome data to be able to make these recommendations. Also, none of the diabetes statin trials randomized patients under age 40. So that's why it starts at age 40. They also didn't randomize people over age 75. So it's not that all of a sudden at age 76 your risk goes away. It's just that they are mimicking what the trials did. So that's why it says that. I really doubt boards are going to get that picky about the age groups and things like that. Just remember that the third group is your diabetic patients. And the fourth is what we talked about, the risk assessment. So the risk assessment is you do an ACCAHA risk assessment, um, and your LDL is between 70 up to 190, and you have a 10-year risk of 7.5% or greater. So again, it fits into that group of 7.5% or greater. So those are the four you have to remember. Known atherosclerotic disease, real high LDL, 190 or greater, diabetes, and a risk calculator, 7.5% 10-year risk. Those are the ones that... Statins have clearly been shown to benefit, and what the guidelines say is it's very reasonable then to start a statin in all these patients, or at least discuss it with all these patients about statin therapy in those four groups. They then say that you should look at two types of statin therapy, high-intensity therapy and uh, the regular moderate-intensity therapy. High-intensity therapy means two drugs at, at uh, uh, two ranges of doses. High intensity is atorvastatin 40 or 80 milligrams and rosuvastatin 20 or 40. Both of those drugs at those doses, on average, lower LDL greater than 50% from baseline. And it was studies in the highest risk groups that showed a greater than 50% reduction gave the greatest risk reduction. So post-MI, we want to have a greater 50% reduction, um, and that's why high dose or high intensity statin is recommended. 
Moderate intensity statin, which is a Torva 10 or 20, Resuva 5 or 10, uh, Simva 40, Prava 40, usually lowers LDL in the 30 to 50% range. And this is recommended for primary prevention. So that patient who has a risk calculator of 7.5% or greater but has no clinical disease, it's reasonable to put them on a moderate intensity statin, 10 of a Torva, for example. So that's the moderate intensity. High is for the highest risk uh, individuals. HDL cholesterol is a risk predictor, but not a good treatment target. So it's a very good risk predictor. That's why it's in the ACCAHA guidelines. You'll see it as one of the numbers you plug in. It predicts risk very well. A very low HDL, especially in women, is a strong predictor of cardiovascular risk. Unfortunately, almost all the studies that have been done trying to raise HDL cholesterol have not shown further risk reduction. So we don't use HDL as a treatment target. We use it as a way of predicting risk. There are some things that do raise HDL. It turns out one of the best ways to raise your HDL is aerobic exercise. We also know that people who exercise at a moderate to high level have lower cardiovascular risk. Some people think it might be because it raises HDL, or it might be other ways that aerobic exercise works. But there is a way you can raise HDL, and that's by doing aerobic exercise. Um, turns out small amounts of alcohol also will raise it slightly. Unclear if that's the mechanism that small amounts of alcohol might help. Estrogens also raise it, but we well now well know that even though HDL goes up with estrogen, estrogen doesn't reduce cardiovascular risk, and some populations may actually worsen cardiovascular risk. Smoking and androgen steroids will lower HDL, and there is an inverse relationship between triglycerides and HDL, and this is very easy to see. If you have somebody who has very high triglycerides, HDL will go down. If you normalize the triglycerides, HDL will come up, and so there's this inverse relationship between them. So if you have somebody who has a very low HDL and a very high triglycerides, the recommendation is treat the triglycerides. Get the triglycerides down. Many times the HDL will come up uh, if you can get the triglycerides down. Smoking cessation, of course, is one of the most important risk uh, reductions that we recommend. It decreases mortality, so there's a total reduction in mortality, and it can decrease the reinfarction rate in somebody who's already had a heart attack by about 50%. And some studies suggest that you can start seeing benefits of smoking cessation within 48 hours. Endothelial function can improve within 48 hours of stopping smoking. The impact on risk is one to two years uh, that you can decrease the risk. It falls out as an independent predictor in these large databases if you stop smoking uh, two to th uh, one to two years ago. Blood pressure control, of course, is another uh, recommended uh, area. This is going to be, I think, somewhat controversial on the boards because there's a whole bunch of controversy about guidelines out there. So I mentioned the JNC 7 guidelines because this is the last formal guideline that everyone agreed on. It's now a 15-plus-year-old guideline, uh, but it's the last one everybody agreed on. And so I just want you to keep it in the back of your mind. I think because there's so many different guidelines out there, they probably won't test you on it as specifically, but this is the last one that the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, American Diabetes Association, American Society of Hypertension all agreed on 15 plus years ago. And they said in that guideline that everybody should have their blood pressure less than 140 over 90. Unless you were a diabetic or had CKD, then it should be less than 130 over 80. That's the only thing you have to remember from the JNC7 guidelines. The JNC people got together to put out JNC8 guidelines, uh, but the government stopped funding the guideline before the guideline came out. And so the um, writing group decided to publish the guideline anyway. Um, they didn't call it a guideline because it really isn't a guideline. They said it's the writing group of the former JNC8. 
It got published in JAMA, and everybody calls it the JNC-8 guideline. But it's only the opinion of the people who wrote it. The American Heart Association did not adopt it. American College of Cardiology did not adopt it. American Diabetes Association did not adopt it. So it's a strange thing out there that people refer to it as JNC-8, um, but it's only the opinion of the writers. So it's not truly a guideline. Because of that, I really don't think that you're going to be tested on it. What was the difference in JNC-8? They suggested that elderly patients may be harmed by lowering their blood pressure too much and that uh, it's okay to not start therapy until systolic's greater than 150. And so that was the big difference in that uh, guideline um, or pseudo-guideline that's out there. And the reason why it wasn't adopted is because there was a huge study being done called the SPRINT trial. And the AHA and the ACC and the ADA and the others wanted to wait for the SPRINT trial to come out because they were going to use that to write new guidelines. This is now a landmark trial. It came out in the latter half of 2015, so it may start sprinkling into boards, so I think it's worth at least knowing about it. It was stopped way earlier than we thought it was going to be. And what they tried to do in that trial is to compare people with what the guidelines said the blood pressure should be compared to a group to get it less than 120 over 80. And they had to stop it early because the patients who had blood pressures targeted to less than 120 over 80 had a clear cardiovascular morbidity and mortality risk reduction. And when put into a meta-analysis, it verified that this result was a true result. So the SPRINT trial is out there. It compared targeting less than 140 to less than 120. It was a high-risk cohort. So in order to get into SPRINT, you had to have a high Framingham score of 15% 10-year risk or greater. So this was a high-risk cohort, and you could not be diabetic. So they excluded diabetes from SPRINT. The main reason why is because another trial called the ACCORD trial that had been completed a few years earlier showed no benefit getting the blood pressure down to 120. So they excluded diabetes. But in this cohort, where they were able to get the blood pressure down to around 120, there was a 27% reduction in all-cause mortality and a nearly 40% reduction in heart failure. Now, there's a one caveat about this trial, and that is that uh, even though they compared less than 140 to less than 120, it was a very carefully measured blood pressure trial. And even the authors of the trial um, point out that um, it's unlikely in clinical practice that the 120 they achieved in the trial is going to equal the 120 in your office. There's probably about a 6 to 8 millimeter difference. And so... The 120 in the trial in your office, even if you're taking blood pressure carefully, is probably 125 to 126. And so most experts say that for the greatest risk reduction, the highest risk patients, getting it into the 120s is probably where we're going to go. The American Heart Association guidelines for hypertension are coming out this fall. So we will see how they wrap sprint into it. Um, so obviously that's not going to be on current uh, testing. But I want you to know about sprint because I think it's been out long enough that you may hear about sprint. Complicated areas, so let me just summarize it. The last major blood pressure guidelines were JNC7 from the early 2000s. Everybody less than 140 over 90, unless you're diabetic or CKD, then it's less than 130 um, over 80 in those groups. JNC8 is not a real guideline. It's just an opinion of the guideline writers, although a lot of people consider it almost, almost a guideline. The only difference in that one is... Elderly, low-risk patients, you don't need to start treatment until the systolic's above 150. That was the one take-home message from that. And then the new message from Sprint 
If you're a high-risk person, age 50 to 80, meaning a 15% 10-year risk or greater, those patients may benefit by targeting systolic down to 120. That summarizes where we're at in the hypertension world, and hopefully new guidelines will make it clearer in the future, although I'm not so sure about that. What about aspirin? So aspirin also, as you know, has been hotly controversial recently, especially when a large Japanese study said that aspirin doesn't help diabetics anymore. So there's controversy about aspirin. So again, we have to go by what do the different groups recommend? So the United States Prevention Services Task Force, they recommend that all adults who are at increased cardiovascular risk, um, starting at age of 50 or higher, um, who don't have a risk of bleeding, it's reasonable to be on low-dose aspirin. Now, there's a couple of things that are important about this. You have to be at increased risk of cardiovascular disease. And so that means if you do a risk analysis using the ACCAHA or Framingham, it puts them into an increased risk cohort. So low-risk adults, it's not recommended. It's recommended in increased-risk adults, age 50 or greater, um, a low-dose aspirin is fine for primary prevention. Diabetes, most groups like the ADA recommend trying to get the hemoglobin A1C to uh, below 7% and aggressively manage all of the other risk factors. For um, obesity guidelines, it also came out at the same time in 2013. Uh, they point out that a normal BMI is 18.5 to 25, and they do suggest try to get as close to an ideal BMI as possible. And also they recognize that intra-abdominal fat is the risk factor that is the most potent, and try to get the risk circumference less than 40 in men and 35 in women if you're Caucasian. They also recognize that these waist circumferences are not the same worldwide. There's different levels of waist circumferences that correlate with um, high risk in, in different uh, cohorts, such as in um, Europeans, East Mediterranean, Middle Eastern, 37 inches uh, for men and 31 and a half for women is the um, level where risk begins to increase for waist circumference. And then recognize that patients who have cardiovascular disease have a high incidence of depression, which can um, impact on therapy and worsen risk, and is certainly reasonable to treat depression. And they also point out in these guidelines things that don't work, like antioxidant vitamins, vitamin E, C, beta-carotene, folic acid, B6, B12. There have not been any convincing studies that these work for secondary prevention, so they're not recommended to use these uh, agents and vitamin E in uh, smokers may actually increase the risk of, of lung cancer. So you have a 45-year-old asymptomatic man, comes for his annual visit. His risk calculator gives him a 9% 10-year risk for an event. So what should you do? You put him on a treadmill stress test. B, give him a statin. C, do a coronary uh, angiogram uh, by CT. D, send him for cardiac catheterization or do an echo. Remember, he's asymptomatic, so if he's asymptomatic, we're not going to be doing much testing for asymptomatic, and so, but he fits a statin group. So he's got a 7.5% 10-year risk or greater, so it's very reasonable to add a statin to his regimen, as you all pointed out. 55-year-old, diabetic, routine visit, blood pressure is 150 over 88. She's otherwise asymptomatic. She's taking a low-dose aspirin. She's taking metformin and a torvastatin 40. So what should we do next? Exercise stress test, do a carotid Doppler, add lisinopril to her regimen, add propranolol to her regimen, add spironolactone.
100%. You guys are great. <laughs> exactly right, too. Adlicinopril. Her blood pressure is elevated. She's nowhere near the 140 over 90 or the 130 over 80. She's asymptomatic, so there's no reasons to do other uh, testing. Uh, so add the one drug that's been um, a compelling indication in diabetes, which is a ACE inhibitor. Good. 50-year-old asymptomatic man routine annual visit, and he asks you about preventing heart disease. And so based on current evidence, you can tell him taking vitamin E reduces cardiovascular events. There's sufficient evidence to recommend that he take low-dose aspirin for primary prevention. See, there's no evidence that aggressively treating blood pressure less than 120 over 80 has benefit for him, or do a CTA to risk stratify him. All right, everybody got A correct. There's no evidence that vitamin E uh, helps. There is sufficient evidence um, of aspirin. So as I mentioned, the United States Preventive uh, Services Task Force recommended um, aspirin for higher-risk uh, individuals. Um, according to the guidelines right now, um, uh, he's not in the highest-risk group, so getting his blood pressure down um, is probably not recommended by guidelines, and we don't need a CTA. Again, this is the part we're going to have to watch because I think that guidelines are going to change from this. But at this point, there's no guideline that says to get it below 120 over 80. So aspirin would be the answer in this particular one. So let's talk briefly about acute coronary uh, syndromes. What the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association has done is it's taken all of the different studies that have been done and tries to um, incorporate them into guidelines and letting us know the um, strength of the um, evidence that is out there. And so there's class one, class two, and class three um, guidelines. Class one guidelines means that the benefit largely um, uh, significantly outweighs any risk, and everybody agrees that the procedure or the treatment should be performed. Contrast to a class three um, benefit, uh, or no benefit in this case. Class three means that there is no clear benefit. As a matter of fact, the therapies most likely are going to give harm, and so everyone agrees not to do this. And so if you look at guidelines, as I mentioned earlier, look at what class one indications are and class three indications are, because everyone agrees you should do class one, everyone agrees you shouldn't do class three, and so those are the ones that typically are found on, on test questions, because those are the ones you should know. Class 2 um, benefits um, are still better than risk. Class 2A, most people say it's reasonable to do it, but there's some dissension. Class 2B means that our risk benefit is about equal. You can consider it, uh, but most experts say we just don't have enough information. And so class 1 and class 2A is, is the ones that are the most reasonable for doing things. And then we divide the level of evidence to level A, B, and C. Level A evidence means that there's at least two multiple randomized control blinded trials of large enough numbers of patients to give the recommendation. So it's at least two randomized controlled blinded trials. Level B means you may have one really good single randomized control trial, but you don't have a second one to verify it. And usually the verification is from a meta-analysis. And so level B is usually a good trial with a meta-analysis. And if it's level three, that means we don't have a trial telling us the answer. Instead, it's all the experts got together in a room and said it's reasonable to do it. And so that's the level of evidence. So if you have a class 1A recommendation, 
That means everyone agrees you should do it, and we've got at least two randomized controlled blinded trials saying that we should do it. And so that's the highest you know, uh, um, level of expertise. So some general considerations of uh, acute coronary syndromes. Uh, again, pain is not always present in patients who have an MI. About 15% of patients will have a silent MI. It's more common to have a silent MI in the elderly. They present with atypical symptoms like confusion. Diabetics, there's more nerve uh, uh, involvement in diabetics. Up to 40% of diabetics will not have chest pain with their MI. And uh, women, although the most common presentation of women is chest pain, uh, uh, they have a little bit uh, lower um, percentage than men. Some will present with heart failure, some will present with a new arrhythmia, elderlies with confusion, et cetera. Differential diagnosis of chest pain is quite uh, wide, but you want to make sure that you don't miss the serious causes of chest pain, like an aortic dissection, a pneumothorax, a pulmonary embolism. Um, there are things that mimic the heart, like pericarditis and esophageal disorders. Turns out of all patients coming with chest pain, 40% of them, it's usually just chest wall pain. 40% of them, you'll be able to make a diagnosis. And 20%, we never figure out what it is, and most people think it's going to be under anxiety or one of the others. So 40% is chest wall pain, 40% you can make a diagnosis, and 20% is probably anxiety. So let's talk about ACS, or acute coronary um, syndromes. The presentation usually is going to be you're suspicious of an acute coronary syndrome because they're having chest pain, usually chest pain at rest. First thing you want to do is do an EKG. And an EKG you want to classify into two groups. Are the ST segments elevated or not elevated? That's the first thing you want. You want to have an EKG within 10 minutes of presentation and look at the ST segments. If the ST segments are elevated, we call that an ST segment elevation MI until proven otherwise. If they are not elevated, then the next step is to do cardiac biomarkers, troponins and CKs. If the biomarkers are positive, then it's a non-ST segment elevation MI or acute coronary syndrome. If they are negative, then it could be unstable angina, and we come up with a final diagnosis. So the point of this is, again, very early get an EKG, stratify people into ST segment elevation or not elevation, and you go different pathways depending if it's elevated or not. Non-ST segment elevated uh, MIs or events are unstable angina or non-STEMI, non-ST segment elevation MIs. These patients usually have known coronary disease. Um, Non-ST segment elevation MIs are usually involving less myocardium than ST segment elevation MIs, but there is a higher risk of recurrence. And at one year, the prognosis of non-STEMIs is just as bad as the prognosis of STEMIs. And so they may have a little less risk up front, but unless we do some treatment, at one year their risk is the same for non-ST segment elevation MIs or unstable angina. So here's an example of a non-STEMI. Um, here is a 12-lead EKG. And notice in V2, V3, the ST segments are pulled down from the baseline a couple of millimeters. V4, they're slurred, downsloping a little bit in V5. So in the right patient, the right patient is somebody coming in saying, I'm having a heavy chest pain that started half an hour ago and won't relent, and you do this EKG. This is EKG criteria in the right clinical setting of a non-ST segment elevation MI. ST segment elevation events, it's the ST segment elevation. It can also localize where in the heart the myocardial infarction is. Usually ST segment elevation MIs go on to develop Q waves, so if you start seeing Q waves with the ST segment elevation, that's almost pathognomonic for an ST segment elevation MI. 
These MIs are usually harder. They're usually from the endocardium to the epicardium, and their upfront prognosis is worse um, than a non-STEMI. So here's an example of an acute um, STEMI. Notice that in V1, V2, V3, the STs are markedly pulled up going into the T wave, so marked ST segment elevation. There's almost no R wave in V1 and V2 and V3, so you're losing R waves. In other words, you're developing Q waves. So this is the anteroseptum, anterior, anterolateral walls. So this is a big anterolateral wall myocardial infarction uh, uh, pattern on this particular EKG. In patients who come in with an acute coronary syndrome, about a quarter of them, it will be a STEMI. About a third will be a non-STEMI, and about 40% will be unstable angina, those who have an acute coronary syndrome that you've ruled out all of the other things. So how do we manage them? So um, in a patient who calls um, EMS with chest discomfort, um, it is recommended that they get nitroglycerin. Um, if the discomfort improves, um, uh, you do want to get it evaluated, but... Um, uh, you want to see if it's going to improve. If it doesn't improve, if you have a patient who has chronic stable angina, so you know that a patient has coronary disease, they're given nitroglycerin as a treatment. They know that they get chest pain at a certain workload. The recommendation is take one nitroglycerin, wait five minutes. If the pain is not, is not gone, take another one. You can do that up to three times. If the pain is resolved, you don't need to call 911. If the pain doesn't resolve, then you call 911. So the exception to this, you know, call 911 after the nitroglycerin is in patients who have known chronic stable angina that respond to nitroglycerin. That's where you've probably heard patients say, I can take up to three. If the third one doesn't help, you call 911. Now, most of these patients, if they're having angina at different levels of, of uh, exertion or if having angina at rest, they should still get evalu evaluated. But there are some patients with chronic stable angina that you can have them on this regimen where they don't necessarily need to call 911. It's recommended you get a EKG as soon as possible. The recommendation is within 10 minutes of um, being seen by the um, medical system. If that can be done by EMS, that's great, and they can forward it through to the ER. If the EMS can't do it, as soon as they get to the ER, as they're rolling in the door, they should get an EKG within 10 minutes. And the reason why is to put people into the STEMI or the non-STEMI category. In STEMI patients who have an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, because of VF or pulseless VT, um, if they are coming in and they're comatose, they usually will go into a cooling uh, protocol if your hospital does the pr a cooling protocol. If um, they have a VT or VF arrest and they're resuscitated, the recommendation is get immediately to the cath lab uh, for PCI uh, to find out what the problem is and to reperfuse the, uh, the heart. There's critical early decisions that we have to make. So within 10 minutes of presenting to the ED with chest pain that sounds like it's a myocardial infarction, there's a few things we need to do right away. We usually give them a full 325 milligram aspirin to chew. Uh, you want it to be absorbed very quickly, so you want to get it into the system quickly. An EKG is done within 10 minutes, and it's interpreted as an ST segment elevation or not. A quick focus physical and exam, you want to make sure we're dealing with an MI, not an aortic dissection, and then draw cardiac markers. And then you want to evaluate risk. And there's a number of different risk evaluations that you can do in the ED, the Timmy score, the GRACE score, the pursuit calculator. 
Most patients use Timmy or Grace, which are the ones that can be used. And these, again, like the AHA risk calculator, are calculators you can download onto your phone to, to do to look to see um, what risk category they're in. Remember that there's a number of other diseases that can mimic an ACS, such as um, uh, non traumatic, uh, um, uh, other non traumatic chest pains or epigastric pains. You can also get. Um, uh, many of the symptoms that are similar, but there are certain symptoms that highly suggest ACS. Patients will say it's much more of a pressure-like symptom. It's not sharp. If it's sharp, you should have a wider differential. It's usually crushing, heavy, a band around their chest, cramping, uh, sometimes burning. It can go up into the lower neck. It can go into both upper arms, sometimes a little bit more in the left, but it can go into the right. It can radiate to the neck and the lower jaw, but never the upper jaw. Uh, it can radiate over to the back. If you have those type of things, you need to rule out ACS. If it bores straight through to the back and it's more sharper, you have to put aortic dissection on your differential. Many patients will present with epigastric discomfort and nausea, sometimes even with vomiting. Many will break out in a cold sweat with an ACS. And most of them will tell you they've never had a pain like this. It's not really severe, but it's, it doesn't make them feel comfortable, and they'll be moving around and feeling very uncomfortable with the, with the pain. And again, you can then do these risk calculators, such as the GRACE or the TIMI models, and these are really looking for high-risk patients because high-risk patients are ones that you want to intervene on quicker than the lower-risk uh, patients. And what are some of the high-risk features from TIMI and the others? Older age people are at higher risk. Patients who are presenting with heart failure symptoms, patients who are presenting hypotensive, patients who continue to have angina despite taking that aspirin or nitroglycerin, patients who have clear and dramatic ST segment changes, and if the biomarkers come back positive. So positive troponin or CKMB, those are higher risk patients. Those are patients usually you want to call cardiology and get them to the cath lab right away. Biomarkers for acute MI, they should be measured in all patients where you suspect an acute MI uh, within um, uh, very soon after presentation, certainly within six hours of symptoms. And the recommendation is to use a cardiac-specific troponin. That's now the preferred biomarker because the sensitivity and specificity is better. So that's a class 1A recommendation to do a troponin uh, biomarker. And then it's recommended in patients who you're um, still doing a rule out to measure them every three to six hours um, uh, to, first of all, make the diagnosis and to get to the peak of it as well. You can measure B-type natriuretic peptides. It's a class 2B, so it's not highly on the list, uh, but uh, that also will be elevated in acute coronary syndromes. We use it more for evaluation of heart failure than for ACS. And CKs, CKMBs, myoglobins, ASTs, ALTs, LDHs, these are no longer considered the primary test for the detection of ACS. You can see they're in class 3, which means there's no real benefit. Many places still do CKs and CKMBs, but I just want to point out the guidelines say don't do them. There's no real benefit for them. There's too many false positives and false negatives. Troponin is the preferred uh, test to do for the CKs. And, you know, they both will peak fairly early. The troponins will hang out for longer, out to about 10 days. CKs will be about 24 to 48 hours. Myoglobin is probably the earliest, but it's so nonspecific, it's not recommended as a cardiac marker. So the cardiac markers um, guidelines say, with the contemporary troponin assays, CKMB and myoglobin are not useful for the diagnosis of ACS, and so that's why they're now a class 3 recommendation. 
So you have symptoms that are suggestive of an ACS. What should we do with these patients? This looks like a very complicated slide, but let me just kind of walk you through it. Um, you have patients that have symptoms suggestive of an ACS. If um, you do an evaluation and it's clearly non-cardiac, you just treat their non-cardiac diagnosis. If you find out that they have chronic stable angina, then you go into a chronic stable angina guideline where you just you know, treat their risk factors. If it's a possible ACS, so you think it's an ACS, but you don't have an EKG that tells you it's an ACS, and you do um, biomarkers and the biomarkers are normal, we still need to watch them for a while because many patients will come in before the EKG will change and before the biomarkers will become positive. And so you want to observe them for at least another three to six hours doing recurrent EKGs and recurrent biomarkers. If it all comes out negative but you still are suspicious, then you can consider a stress test uh, to uh, further evaluate them. If you're observing them and they get more pain or one of the follow-up studies, the EKG changes or the biomarkers become positive, uh, then you go through the ACS protocol for those patients. Let's go back to the patient who has symptoms that sound like it might be an ACS. They come into the ED and the EKG is positive. Well, if it's nested segment elevation or they have a new or presumed new left bundle branch block, go into the STEMI guidelines. If they come in with symptoms that sound like an ACS, you do an EKG and they have ST segment depression, um, you then risk stratify them with uh, looking at the um, EKG, are they still having ongoing symptoms? You're going to do a TIMI score, do biomarkers, and then you admit them for the uh, non-ST segment elevation guidelines, and you determine if they're high risk or low risk if you call the cath lab or not. So I know this is fairly complicated, but the point is that some patients will come in with symptoms that sound like ACS, but everything will be normal. Follow them for a while because it may take three, four, five hours before biomarkers become normal. It may take an hour before an EKG will change. So they need to be followed um, to look to see if they're going to develop symptoms. And if you um, have a patient who is kind of that possible ACS, the biomarkers are negative, their TIMI scores are, are low, the guidelines say that in those kind of low-risk, atypical chest pain patients, CT angiography is an acceptable alternative to a stress test. Um, it is a 2A um, recommendation with only B um, uh, evidence for it. Um, so it's really a candidate who is in that intermediate risk, atypical chest pain who can't exercise, that CT angiography is usually recommended. That's where CT angiography fits in. So it's really, by the guidelines, a fairly small group of patients where CT angiography is recommended. So we have a 55-year-old female who is a cigarette smoker and has premature coronary disease in her family, has two hours of crescendo angina. What would be the first line diagnostic test? EKG, stress test, EGD, cardiac MRI, or a pharmacologic nuclear stress test? You all know the answer to this. It is... Perfect, EKG, we want to get that EKG, we want to see if it's a STEMI or a non-STEMI, so you do an EKG within that first 10 minutes, that's what we do first. Typical angina in a 55-year-old male, two millimeters of ST-segment depression in the inferior leads 2-3 in AVF on the EKG. What should you order next? A total CK, a CKMB subfraction, cardiac troponin I, an LDH, or an amylase and lipase?
Great, troponin is the one. So the others uh, don't have much use anymore. We do a troponin um, for those, uh, those patients. So we now have a patient who's come into the hospital with an acute coronary syndrome. Uh, what do we do as our first uh, treatment as patients come in? Uh, give them oxygen if their oxygen saturation is low. Uh, it's not mandatory that everybody be put on oxygen. The recommendation now is just if the um, uh, oxygen saturation is below 90% or they clearly are in respiratory uh, distress. Um, you can, again, give that one nitroglycerin to see if the uh, uh, pain goes away. If the pain persists, you can give them intravenous nitroglycerin. Uh, just remember that it's relatively contraindicated if there's a recent use of a PDE inhibitor, such as sildenafil, so do ask because that can cause profound hypotension if you combine the two together. Discontinue any non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. They will interfere with uh, aspirin, the benefit of aspirin. Beta blockers are one of the main stays of therapy that we give for coronary artery disease. They can be given within the first 24 hours, uh, but be careful in patients who have signs and symptoms of heart failure or low cardiac output or at high risk for cardiogenic shock or other major contraindications to beta blockers such as advanced heart block or bronchospasm. This is a change from old guidelines. So those of you who may remember old guidelines, the old guidelines were that this was one of the drugs we gave as an intravenous drug as patients came into the ED with an acute MI that is no longer uh, a recommendation because of the hazard of causing hypotension and heart failure. So now beta blockers are given orally, not IV, within the first 24 hours if you don't have a contraindication to a beta blocker. Calcium channel blockers can be used instead of beta blockers, but be careful with these as well, especially in patients who have LV systolic dysfunction. It can make heart failure worse. But diltiazem and verapamil also in non-ST segment elevation MIs uh, can have some benefit of reducing angina if LV function is normal. And then again, within the first 24 hours, it's recommended to start a high-intensity statin. Uh, most patients will be given a torvastatin 80 because that was the drug and the dose that was used in the major um, acute myocardial infarction study showing benefit. For patients with a definite or a likely uh, non-ST segment ACS um, and uh, percutaneous coronary intervention, um, aspirin is used uh, both as an initial drug when they come into the ED and then indefinitely um, after the um, uh, event. Um, usually they're given um, 162 to 325 milligrams immediately. Most patients will give 325 and then 81 milligrams indefinitely as long as there's no contraindications. With the aspirin, a P2Y12 inhibitor, either clopridogrel, ticagrelor, or prazogrel is also given. Um, and usually it's given as a loading dose um, if they're going to get a PCI. If they get a PCI with a drug-eluting stent, the recommendations are to continue clopridogrel, ticagrelor, or prazogrel for a year um, because of the stent. If they didn't get a stent, the new guidelines um, now say, if all possible, still try to go for a year. So the old guidelines said for a minimum of a month, um, preferably a year. The new guidelines now say go for the full year unless there's a contraindication. So that was the other change is they want the two agents uh, now called dual antiplatelet therapy, a aspirin, low-dose aspirin, and a P2Y12 inhibitor for a year after an MI. And then um, an anticoagulation is usually recommended. Um, and that usually is unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin, anoxaparin. 
Either can be used, although there is evidence that anoxaparin is preferred. There's a lower risk of anoxaparin compared to unfractionated heparin. So subcutaneous anoxaparin is usually given until PCI and then uh, after PCI uh, and the lesion is treated and a stent is put in, then it's just dual antiplatelet therapy. Uh, an alternative to noxaparin can be bivalrudin as well. Um, uh, and that's usually going to be, that decision is going to be made in the cath lab depending on the clot burden of the patient. This is a class 3, so this is one that does harm. Uh, fibrinolytic therapy, TPA, streptokinase, is not recommended in non-STEMIs. So non-ST segment elevation, ACS, it's a contraindication. Those patients do worse. So we don't give TPA, streptokinase for non-STEMIs, only for STEMIs. So you have a 60-year-old female with diabetes, comes to the ED with left jaw pain, dyspnea, fatigue. EKG shows 2-millimeter ST segment depression in the lateral leads. Troponin is positive at 4.1. Oxygen saturation is 96%. Which of the following should you do? Begin oxygen by a nasal cannula. B, begin oxygen by face mask. C, give her 325 milligrams of aspirin to chew. D, give her TPA. Or E, give amlodipine. Great, so you want to give her aspirin, so she's coming in with a non-STEMI. Oxygen saturation is above 90%, so oxygen is not indicated. It's a non-STEMI, so TPA is not indicated, and there's really no role for amlodipine. So what about non-ST segment elevation, ACS, or non-STEMI myocardial infarctions, invasive versus conservative therapy? Invasive therapy means that you've made the diagnosis of a non-ST segment elevation MI, and you go right to the cath lab. Conservative therapy is you just treat them medically with dual antiplatelets, anticoagulant, and you only go to the cath lab if it's clear that there's going to be ongoing uh, signs and symptoms. And so these are the patient characteristics of when we would go right to the cath lab. They're still having angina despite the therapy that you've given them. Their biomarkers are getting higher and higher. Their ST segments are not going back to normal. They're going into heart failure. Um, if they started conservative therapy and you do some non-invasive testing like a low-level stress test and it's markedly positive, if they become hemodynamically unstable, they drop their blood pressure, if they have episodes of ventricular tachycardia. The other one that's important to remember is if they had a coronary intervention recently, within six months having a PCI or a cabbage, uh, these are patients that uh, are coming back in likely with a restenosis or thrombosis of the stent or the bypass. And so those patients usually recommended go right to the um, cath lab. If they have a high-risk score by using one of these scoring mechanisms like Timmy or Grace, um, and if they have other significant risk factors, diabetes and renal failure that increase their uh, risk and, and worsen their prognosis, or if they have significant new decrease in LV function. These are patients that they do better with an invasive therapy. So if they have none of those, if they have a TIMI score that's one or two, for example, and they have none of these other things, if they completely um, become asymptomatic with therapy, um, it is perfectly fine to continue medical therapy and not go to the cath lab. That will be about 20% of patients who will fit into that, uh, that uh, category of patients. So let's talk about the STEMI patients. So this is a patient who has ST segment elevation MI. Let's say they come into the ED and that they're at a hospital that can do a PCI. The recommendation is if you're at a PCI-compatible hospital that you should go to the cath lab and you want to get them there under 90 minutes. We call it door-to-balloon time 
From the time they enter the door into the ED, by the time the balloon and the stent is put in the artery, we want that under 90 minutes. So we really want to get them to the cath lab very quickly. So they get a diagnostic angiogram, and if they have a lesion amenable to PCI, they get the PCI. If they don't have a severe lesion, they get medical therapy. If they have lots of severe lesions, they might get bypass surgery. If they're seen at a non-PCI compatible hospital, then you have one of two choices. Either you can transfer them to a PCI-compatible hospital if you can get them there in a timely fashion. And again, the timely fashion is from the time they enter the door at your non-PCI hospital to the time the balloon crosses the lesion is less than two hours. Or if it's going to be longer than that, then these are the patients that you're going to give fibrinolytic therapy, TPA or streptokinase. Um, and then you may transfer them then, depending on how they respond to the, uh, to the therapy. What about statins? We've already mentioned that all patients with coronary artery disease should receive high-intensity statins. Um, that's one of the four statin benefit groups that we've already talked about, and that all patients should then go to cardiac rehab. Cardiac rehab gives a morbidity and mortality patients uh, benefit in patients who have had an ACS, so they should all be referred for cardiac rehab. So you have a 56-year-old male who has a non-ST segment elevation ACS. He's given aspirin in the field. He's now being prepped for a cardiac catheterization. Which of the following medicines should you have on his orders list? Lisinopril 40, furosemide 20, Atorva 80, Atorva 10, or Lovastatin 20? Torva 80 is the uh, answer because he's having an ACS and we want a high-intensity statin for that patient. 70-year-old has ST segment elevation in 2, 3, and F, so an inferior MI. She's at a PCI-compatible facility. What do you recommend? Let's go back again. She's 70 years old with ST segment elevation. A, due to her age, she should not be referred for cardiac catheterization. B, due to her gender, she should not be referred for cardiac catheterization. C, she should be referred for immediate PCI, or D, she should undergo a transthoracic echo. Great. So age and gender do not go into the algorithm of who should go to the cath lab. Um, it may tell you something about risk. The older you are, the higher the risk, uh, but it shouldn't preclude for an ACS um, going to the cath lab. A diabetic patient has unstable angina. ECG shows new T-wave inversions in the precordial leads. What's best to do next? Go to coronary angiography, observe for 8 to 12 hours, just do a regular stress test, do a stress test with perfusion imaging, or do a debutamine stress echo. So what I think this question is getting at is that you have a patient who has other risk factors, so is considered a high-risk patient, so fits into that risk calculator that would be high risk. Um, and so if you're at a high risk, then it's to go to the cath lab uh, uh, more immediately than doing the conservative uh, therapy. Antiplatelet agents, of course, are the baseline of therapy of ACS. Aspirin, the P2Y12 inhibitors, clopridogrel, prazogrel, and ticagrelor. But there's also another group of agents that I'll just briefly mention, the glycoprotein 2B3A receptor antagonists, abciximab, tyrofiban, and eptifibatide. 
These are not used that much anymore. Um, they're rarely used in the ED. Uh, they're mostly used in the cath lab if there's a high clot burden. And so we still sometimes use them in the cath lab, but they're sort of falling very low down on the um, algorithm. But just be aware that these 2B3As uh, are available uh, in patients, um, but they're used after patients are already on aspirin, a P2I12, an anticoagulant, and then they're sometimes used for a high clot burden. The anticoagulants are used after dual antiplatelet therapy. So you've started somebody on aspirin and on something like clopidogrel, and then there's an anticoagulant. Usually for ACS, it's either unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin like anoxaparin. Um, the cath lab may decide on bivalrudin or fondaparinux. Depends partly on allergies to some of these agents. And then we now have, of course, warfarin and the, uh, the newer oral anticoagulants that we can consider as well. Aspirin is an irreversible inhibitor of cyclooxygenase, um, and so it inhibits plat platelet aggregation. The P2Y12 binds to the P2Y12 receptor, which also prevents uh, cross-linking of the uh, platelets. Uh, unfractionated heparin uh, works through antithrombin uh, 3, which inactivates thrombin and factor 10A, and the low molecular weight heparins bind directly and inhibit uh, factor 10A, leading to its anticoagulation effect. And remember, warfarin is a vitamin K-dependent um, agent um, and uh, works through factors 2, 7, 9, and 10 uh, by, um, again, reducing the thrombin uh, clot through inhibition of those factors. So this is um, really meant as to look at the, what the guidelines say for these agents. I just want to point out a couple of things. In patients who are going for PCI, they all get loaded with a full-dose aspirin. Most of these patients will already have had one in the ED, uh, but they're given a full-dose um, aspirin, and then they're put on a maintenance dose of low-dose aspirin. We then use one of the P2Y12s, and uh, usually they're given as a loading dose. You don't need to memorize what the loading dose is, but these are the standard loading doses that are used um, if they're going for a PCI. And then if a drug-eluting stent is placed, these agents, the aspirin and the P2Y12s, are used for up to a year. If a bare metal stent is placed, you can stop the um, P2Y12s after a month, but if they've had an MI, the recommendation is to try to use them for a year. We'll sometimes put a bare metal stent in somebody who has a high bleeding risk, and they can be stopped after a month, although the recommendation is if you can, use it for a year, not for the stent anymore, but because they've had an MI. You can consider going beyond a year with these agents. It's a class 2B, so it's not a high recommendation. There's some, early, there's some newer studies that are now suggesting very high-risk patients may benefit from these agents beyond a year. But right now, they're low on the um, uh, uh, recommended, recommended risk. So the things to remember are aspirin and P2Y12s for a year, following an MI, following a stent, the only exception is a bare metal stent. You can go a month if there's a contraindication for going for the year. What about fibrinolytic therapy? Um, it's a class one indication. If you have somebody with a STEMI who um, cannot get PCI and they're still having ischemic symptoms and they're under 12 hours from the start. Um, the sooner you give it, the better. We like to give it within the first four to six hours, but if they're still having symptoms up to 12 hours, you can give thrombolytic therapy. Do not give it for a non-STEMI. For ST-segment depression, MI, don't give it because it gives harm in non-STEMIs. It gives benefit in STEMIs. 
And this is the effectiveness of reperfusion therapy. If you have a patient who comes in with classic symptoms of a STEMI and has a new or presumed new left bundle branch block, these patients get the greatest benefit from reperfusion therapy because they're the sickest. A new left bundle branch block usually means a massive anterior MI, and so they have the greatest benefit. The next is any anterior ST segment elevation MI. Uh, the least benefit is the inferior ST-segment MI, but there is some benefit. You have harm if it's an ST-segment depression MI. So new or presumed new left bundle branch block uh, has the greatest uh, outcomes because you have the most to lose if you don't treat them. There's a number of different fibrinolytic agents. You don't need to know the differences between them. Uh, the only thing to remember is tissue plasminogen activator has the highest patency rate, but has a slightly higher bleeding risk. And so higher patency rates, slightly higher bleeding risk, although this one has really become the drug of choice. There's a number of different ways you can get TPA. They're all about the same, uh, but higher patency rate with a slightly higher bleeding risk. Mortality is decreased the earlier you give a fibrinolytic, especially if it's given within the first hour. There's a significant reduction in mortality. They need to be given together with heparin. So the GUSTO trial was one of the trials that showed that if you give TPA alone and not with heparin, you had not as good outcomes. If you gave TPA with heparin, there was a slight mortality advantage. The problem is there was a lot more bleeding. And so they are used together, but the anticoagulants and TPA together do give an increased risk of bleeding, but there is a benefit by using both together. There are absolute contraindications to TPA. If you've had a prior intracranial hemorrhage or a known intracerebral vascular uh, lesion or a malignant intracerebral neoplasm, if you've had a stroke within the last three months, if you suspect the patient's having an aortic dissection, if they're actively bleeding, especially if it's major bleeding, if they've had some recent uh, head trauma or spinal or intracranial surgery, if they have uncontrolled hypertension, this is usually hypertensive emergency, meaning systolic blood pressure is significantly above 180. Um, and if you've already had streptokinus, you can't give streptokinus again because you can get an allergic reaction if you've had treatment within the last six months. There are some relative contraindications. Uncontrolled hypertension is one of those, but if you get it under control and get the systolic below 160, it's usually safe. If you had a prior ischemic stroke, but it's older, you can, it's only a relative contraindication. Um, dementia, other intracranial pathology like a meningioma is relative uh, contraindication. If you've had prolonged CPR or had a recent major surgery the last couple of weeks or recent internal bleeding even though it stopped. If uh, during resuscitation you've had a lot of punctures in arteries, if you're pregnant, active peptic ulcer disease, or on already oral anticoagulants, these are relative contraindications. Depending on the type of MI, we still may do, use them, recognizing that there's an increased bleeding risk. And then um, if you've given thrombolytic therapy, it's a class one indication to transfer them to a institution that can do PCI if they go into shock or go into severe heart failure, or if they fail reperfusion, then you want to get them to a uh, PCI-compatible institution after you've given them the fibrinolytic. For those who have had uh, fibrinolysis and did not receive reperfusion, um, indications for angiography, if they're in shock, if they're having severe heart failure, if they have high-risk uh, features, uh, non-ischemic testing, or they're having ongoing provoked ischemia, those patients should still go to the cath lab. So there are some patients that you give thrombotic therapy 
The EKG goes back to normal. The pain all goes away. Uh, they get up and move around. They have no symptoms. You put them on a treadmill. They have a negative stress test. You don't need to do an angiogram. The ones that you do an angiogram are the ones that are still having problems despite reperfusion therapy. And the class 1As are shock, heart failure, still having ischemia, either spontaneous or easily provoked. Those are the ones that are class A that they should go to angiography. So talking about some of the other medications, when do we use nitroglycerin? It's good for chest pain, but it also can help um, unload the heart if they're in heart failure or lower blood pressure. So if it's just treating uh, chest pain, you can give sublingual nitroglycerin, but you could do an IV infusion if they need um, LV unloading or if they have high blood pressure. The times to avoid it are if you suspect that there's a right ventricular infarct. These patients are very preload dependent, and if they have an RV infarct, it can drop their blood pressure. If they're relatively hypotensive with systolic blood pressures below 90, avoid nitroglycerin, or if they've recently had a uh, um, sildenafil-type uh, agent, don't uh, give it. Oxygen is recommended if their oxygen saturations are below 90%, or if they're having bad heart failure or dyspnea, Usually it's by nasal cannula. You can give a mask if their oxygen saturations don't improve. And just be caution in some patients with bad COPD who may be CO2 retainers. Morphine is indicated to relieve anxiety and pain. It also can be used for pulmonary edema. And uh, it's used initially as an IV dose, but you want to avoid it in patients who are already lethargic or hypotensive or very bradycardic. Beta blockers, as I mentioned, are started within the first 24 hours. Um, but you have to use them carefully. They're no longer an IV medication because they can worsen heart failure or put patients into low output shock. So if you have patients with acute heart failure, low output shock, or high degree heart blocks, those are the ones that you want to be careful using beta blockers. And then if they um, are started on a beta blocker, they should be used indefinitely after the hospitalization. Um, unless they have contraindications. If they have a contraindication, but that contraindication gets treated and gets better, then reassess. You can give it 24, 48 hours later if you will need to. IV beta blockers are usually not recommended um, unless there's an urgent need for them. Now it's recommended give them as an oral dose of therapy. Patients in cardiogenic uh, shock, uh, those patients who are at risk are older, uh, present with low blood pressure and high heart rates, and are a longer duration from when the ACS started. So the longer their ACS started before you give therapy, they're at higher risk of going into cardiogenic shock. We have a 65-year-old female who has an anterior STEMI. She's at a non-PCI facility, so she gets TPA. Eight hours later, she has a blood pressure of 90 over 60. Dibutamine and dopamine have been started. Her heart rate's 120. She's in sinus rhythm. What should you do next? A, add vasopressin and epinephrine. B, give IV metoprolol. C, transfer her to a PCI facility. D, repeat the, the dose of TPA, TPA or begin CPR. Good. Everyone wants to transfer. So she's um, relatively stable at this point. Um, IV metoprolol is contraindicated. Don't ever give a second dose of TPA. If the first one didn't work, um, you're just going to cause bleeding. She's not um, in ACLS uh, protocol at this point, so we want to transfer her now because she has high risk and get that lesion uh, opened. 64-year-old at a PCI-compatible hospital with a STEMI, diagnosed by EMS. Vital signs are stable. What should you do? A, give streptokinase. B, give TPA. C, give TPA with heparin. 
D, uh, send for emergent PCI, or E, obtain a urgent transthoracic echo. So remember the um, question said um, at a PCI-compatible institution, so you're going to refer for PCI since they're able to do it. An 80-year-old has an inferior STEMI, three hours of nausea, vomiting, and dyspnea, promptly treated with PCI to the right coronary artery. Which of the following is true? Due to his gender, he's at higher risk of shock. Due to his age, he's at higher risk of cardiogenic shock. Due to not receiving TAPA, he's at a higher risk of shock. D, because this was an inferior MI, he's not at any risk of cardiogenic shock. And the answer is... So the question is, what is a risk factor for going into shock? And the answer is, it's his age, which is the major risk factor. Gender doesn't help. Uh, TPA, um, uh, the PCI is better than TPA in reperfusing, and inferior MIs can go into shock uh, as well. What about uh, ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers? It's a class one indication that an ACE inhibitor should be given to all patients with an anterior STEMI and an ejection fraction 40% or less. An ARB is an acceptable alternative if you can't tolerate an ACE. You can also give an aldosterone antagonist that's usually spironolactone or alplerinone. If they're already on an ACE and they're already on a beta blocker and their EF is less than 40%, who are still having symptoms. So we add eplerinone or spironolactone after you've treated them with ACEs and uh, beta blockers. Um, there, it's a 2A that ACE inhibitors are reasonable for all STEMI patients, uh, but the ones that have the greatest benefit are the ones that have EFs less than 40%. Lipid management, we've already mentioned, high-intensity statins should be started in everybody. You can obtain a, a fasting lipid profile, but you don't need to wait for that. You can just give the uh, statin in everybody with a STEMI. Risk assessment after a STEMI, we can do non-invasive testing for ischemia prior to discharge. This is um, in patients who have not had angiography and don't have high-risk clinical features. So if they had angiography, we already know the anatomy, or if they had high-risk clinical features, they would have gotten angiography. So non-invasive testing is those conservative treated patients with medical therapy. They responded wonderfully. They're doing fine. They're up and walking around. You want to assess them before they go. You do a stress test. If it's low-risk stress test, you just treat them medically. If there's high-risk features, then they go back to angiography. Everybody who's had a heart attack needs an assessment of LV function. This is a class one indication. It's looking for a low ejection fraction. So everybody should get at least some sort of evaluation of LV function. That could be an LV gram during angiography. It could be a, um, a EF determined on a radial nucleotide um, stress test. It could be an echo looking at it, but all patients should get an EF. And then we need to do a risk assessment for sudden cardiac death. These are patients who have a depressed EF. That's why we gotta get an EF on everybody because if you're on optimal medical therapy and your EF stays below um, 35% after 40 days of medical therapy, you reach an indication for an ICD. So we need to know what the EF is to make that distinction. And then emergency revascularization is recommended in patients in cardiogenic shock, um, either PCI or cabbage. Cardiogenic shock is extremely high mortality risk, and so emergency revascularization is recommended for anyone in shock. So you have a 66-year-old admitted with an anterior STEMI. She undergoes primary PCI to the LAD, 100% uh, patency. At the time of her cath, her EF is noted to be 35%. 
Should you refer her for an ICD immediately? Should she receive a beta blocker to target her heart rate to 50? Should she be referred for cabbage? Should she have lisinopril added to her medication list? And should she not be referred to cardiac rehab because she had such a good PCI result? What do you think? So everybody wants to put her on an ACE inhibitor. Good. So in this particular one, she uh, shouldn't be referred to ICD immediately because she just got treated. The EF is 35%, but she needs optimal medical therapy for 40 days. Since her artery is completely open, it's highly likely her EF is going to get better. Um, and uh, she does have some LV dysfunction, though. And what is the first drug of choice for the LV dysfunction? Get her on an ACE inhibitor. Uh, she doesn't need a bypass, uh, and she, everybody should go to um, cardiac rehab. What about temporary pacing? It's, again, indicated in symptomatic patients. So we have symptomatic bradycardia. Temporary pacing can be used. And ICD is indicated before discharge only in patients who have had sustained arrhythmias 48 hours after their STEMI, um, provided it's not due to having another ischemic event. If you have VT or VF within the first couple of hours due to the event, due to the ischemia, if you revascularize that patient, their risk remains very low, and they don't need an ICD for that. It's they, if they continue to have VT or VF after the initial ischemic event, usually after 48 hours, that's an indication for an ICD, regardless of the ejection fraction, because now you're treating a known um, event, VT or, or VF. So ICDs post-MI, patients need to be at least 40 days post-MI on optimal medical therapy. On optimal medical therapy, the EF remains at 35% or below, and they have to have a life expectancy of at least a year uh, because the studies show the benefit begins after a year of having the ICD. So if they have some other disease that's going to cause their death in less than a year, we usually don't recommend an ICD. So management of pericarditis post-STEMI, this happens in a small group of patients who have a large, especially anterior MI. It irritates the pericardium, and they get a pleuritic positional uh, chest pain. Aspirin is usually the drug of choice that can help the pain and can help, so give aspirin. You can use uh, colchicine and acetaminophen to help the pain as well. Narcotics can be used as well. But you want to avoid other non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and, if at all possible, avoid glucocorticoids uh, because they're potentially harmful. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs may actually increase hemorrhage into the pericardium, and so they're not indicated. They also may cause constriction of coronary arteries. Aspirin is the only good non-steroidal that is recommended for pericarditis post-STEMI. Other complications of a STEMI, hemodynamically unstable tachyarrhythmias. If they're hemodynamically unstable, they should be immediately cardioverted. If they are stable, uh, then we're just going to control the rhythm. If it's atrial fibrillation with a rapid ventricular response, beta blockers are the drug of first choice to control the um, heart rate. Remember, right ventricular infarctions, they almost always occur when the artery feeding the inferior wall is occluded, like the right coronary artery, which is about 85%. About 15%, it's due to a branch off the circumflex artery. That's when you get a RV infarction. So it's associated with an inferior posterior MI. When do you suspect an RV infarct? Patients who are hypotensive but have clear lung fields but high jugular venous pulsations that increase with inspiration. So hypotensive, high JVP, but lungs are clear. Think right heart is the problem, not the left heart in those patients. 
You can sometimes diagnose an RV infarct by doing an EKG with right-sided leads. Right-sided leads are the same as the left side, only on the right side of the chest. And you can get one to two millimeter ST segment elevation in a V4R lead on the right side of the chest. That's a diagnostic of an RV infarct. The trouble is these are transient and they go away pretty quickly. And so it's really most of the time a clinical diagnosis. How do you treat it when the RV is failing? It's not pumping enough blood to the LV, so you need usually to give fluids. If you can give some fluids. Again, the lungs are clear, even though the jugular veins are up. If you give fluids, you can maintain cardiac output. Dibutamine will sometimes help as well, but you want to avoid anything that's going to lower preload, so nitrates are relatively contraindicated because it'll drop the pressure more. So now you have a 33, I mean a, a patient, who was admitted to the CCU with chest pain and suddenly develops a narrow, complex, irregular tachycardia with a blood pressure that is 70 millimeters of mercury. What do we do next? Give her adenosine. B, give her an intravenous beta blocker. C, give her intravenous diltiazem. D, perform immediate synchronized electrocardioversion. Or E, give her intravenous amiodarone. What should we do? Remember, uh, she comes in with a blood pressure of 70. So 70 is into the range of shock. And as most of you pointed out, we want to cardiovert her because she has a hemodynamically unstable arrhythmia. It may be an SVT, uh, but, uh, and these other drugs may help it, but she's un hemodynamically unstable. She should be cardioverted immediately. Now we have a 74-year-old admitted after four hours of chest pain. Her blood pressure fell to 60 over 40. Her neck veins are elevated, and she has the following EKG. And so look quickly at the EKG. What do you see? Your eyes are drawn to the inferior leads, where you see there's some ST segment changes. But you're also drawn to the anterior leads, where you see some ST segment changes as well. And so you're thinking of ST segment elevation. A right heart cath was inserted, and the following pressures were found. Her right atrial pressure is very high. Remember, right atrial pressure is less than 5. It's 19. Her RV pressure is um, somewhat high, 30 over 17. You know, normal's up to about mid-20s. PA pressure, a little bit high, 31 over 17. But her wedge pressure is 12. So a wedge pressure up to 12 is normal. So this is kind of upper normal, but with a higher RA pressure. So in looking at these numbers, where does it look like the problem is? Think about where the problem is causing this high right atrial pressure, but a relatively preserved wedge pressure. So what's the diagnosis? Is this tamponade? Is this cardiogenic shock? Is this papillary muscle dysfunction? Is this an RV infarct? Or is this a VSD? Good. So high right atrial pressure, uh, relatively normal pressure going into the LV. Tamponade, remember I mentioned it, and I'll mention it a couple more times when we go up about tamponade. All the diastolic pressures are equal and elevated. Uh, cardiogenic shock, the filling pressure to the LV should be very high. So we would have expected the wedge pressure to be higher. Papillary muscle dysfunction, again, now we have severe MR. It's going to cause high pulmonary pressures and high filling pressures. So LV, EDP, the wedge pressure should be high. The RV infarct is one where the pressures are real high on the right atrium, pretty normal going into the LV. 
a VSD would also cause um, very high filling pressures of, of the LV. So what really tells you this was RV was that that wedge pressure was low, um, and she was in sh relative shock. Her blood pressures were low, and that's because the RV was not pumping blood to the, uh, to the LV. So RV infarction. 56-year-old, acute inferior MI by EKG and biomarkers. Two hours afterwards, he becomes profoundly hypotensive, which would not support the diagnosis of an RV infarct. One is you hear a third heart sound at the left sternal border. B, the neck vein's uh, distension is on inspiration. C, pulmonary congestion on auscultation. D, ST segment elevation in the right-sided chest leads. Or E, an echo showing RV dilatation and hypokinesis. So this um, question has a negative in it. Which of the following does not support an RV infarct? Which of these... Uh, five is not typical in an RV infarct, and you all got it right. The lungs should be clear. So you can hear a third heart sound from the RV failing. Neck veins are going to be distended. You're going to get Kussmaul sign that inspiration is going to make them higher. You expect to see an inferior posterior RV infarct on EKG, so right-sided leads are going to be potentially positive for an RV infarct, and an echo is going to show the RV infarct. So it's only if there's pulmonary congestion, think of something else. VTVF, I mentioned a little bit earlier that if you have VTVF in the early periods of an MI, that's usually due to a perfusion problem. Many times it's due to reperfusion. So the artery has uh, opened up by fibrinolytic therapy or autofibrinolytic therapy or PCI. You can get VTVF. It may require treatment, but it does not have a bad prognosis if it's due to reperfusion, if it's due to early ischemia. The bad prognosis is if you have VTVF now after the ischemia has been treated. So usually after 48 hours, that's now associated with a poor prognosis. It's usually associated with LV dysfunction. Those are the patients who need an ICD. Ventricular tachyarrhythmias obviously convert if you have VT or unstable uh, VF or unstable VT. If you have stable VT, so they're hemodynamically stable, you can consider giving medical therapy, and usually that's amiodarone. There's a number of different uh, regimens which are not important to know, but stable VT in the presence of an acute MI is usually with uh, intravenous amiodarone as the drug of first choice. 72-year-old has an acute inferior MI. Two hours later, her heart rate is 32, and she's lightheaded and diaphoretic. So what's the most appropriate therapy? Give her dopamine, give her dibutamine, give her the beta blocker esmolol IV, give her atropine, or give her digoxin? What should you give her? So she's had an acute MI. She has a transient slowing of her heart rate. Usually that transient slowing of the heart rate is some transient uh, uh, heart blocks, and so usually atropine is the dose of choice to give to try to speed up the uh, heart rate. Uh, dibutamine and dopamine as if she's going into shock. Esmolol and digoxin will do the opposite. It'll make it slower, so atropine is the answer. When do we pace? If the bradycardia is symptomatic. So if she was 32 and very symptomatic, not responding to atropine, you could have given her a temporary pacemaker. First degree and second degree type 1 AV block rarely require pacing. They're transient. They almost always go away. They rarely cause symptoms. It's only second degree type 2, MOBUS type 2 block or third degree um, AV block that uh, tend to need pacing. Although, again, only if symptomatic. Even third degree heart block or type 2 
um, second-degree heart block, many times are transient and go away as they're treated. So if they're symptomatic, we pace. If not, many times we watch and see if they need pacing down the road. Inferior versus anterior MI. Inferiors tend to be smaller with a better prognosis. The inferior ones is where AV blocks occur. And that's because off the right corner artery is where the artery that feeds the AV node and the sinus node comes from. So AV blocks, first, second, third degree AV blocks are much more common with inferior MIs, but the prognosis usually has no major effect. Anterior MIs tend to be larger, their prognosis is worse. If you get AV block with an anterior MI, that means that MI is so big it's affected the conduction system, so it's really caused ischemia around where the conduction system is, because anterior MIs are usually LADs, and they don't get much perfusion to the conduction system. That's coming from the right coronary artery. So if you get AV block with an anterior MI, that's a very poor prognosis, because it's usually a very large MI. There's four major catastrophes that can occur after an MI. You can rupture the free wall. You can rupture the papillary muscle, cause acute MR. You can rupture the septum, causing a VSD, or you can go into cardiogenic shock. If you rupture the free wall, this is usually an anterior MI in older hypertensive individuals who tend to have fairly thin ventricles. So older hypertensive women is where free wall ruptures are usually seen, and they either um, have syncope or go into tamponade. It can be diagnosed with an echo. They need to go to immediate, immediate surgery because the mortality rate is over 95%. Papillary muscle dysfunction, this is the muscle that uh, controls the mitral valve. Uh, you can go into acute MR. The acute mitral regurgitation sends blood right into the um, uh, lungs, and you can go into uh, florid pulmonary edema. It's got a murmur that usually flows right through to the back. Many times you can hear the murmur in the back better than the front. Diagnosed with echo, better prognosis, but it needs surgery to repair the papillary muscle rupture. A VSD is usually in a large anteroseptal MI because now you've necrosed the septum. Um, this murmur is a very loud machine-like murmur, almost always palpable, so you can feel the murmur. It has a thrill, um, and it's diagnosed again by echo where you can see the VSD. Sometimes oxygen saturations through a cath lab can also make the diagnosis. It also is surgery prognosis a little bit better. Cardiogenic shock is usually seen with large anterior MIs, rarely with inferior, but it can be with inferior. It's usually due to significant LV dysfunction. So patients are in low output heart failure. It can be um, diagnosed with echo. And this is supportive measures. You want to open the artery that's blocked, but you want to support their heart failure. And uh, they can have a better prognosis if we can get them treated. So a 73-year-old man with typical angina for 12 hours admitted to the ICU. His exam is normal, but his troponin I peaks at 45, which is very high. He's treated with medical therapy, and he has this EKG. And notice if you look at the anterior wall, there is large ST segment elevation. Three days after the submission, he develops severe hypotension and dyspnea. He has elevated neck veins, diffuse pulmonary crackles, a four out of six systolic murmur, all across the percordium, his left uh, parasternum has this big lift, and he has this chest X-ray, which I think all of you can see that there is now white throughout all of his lungs. And so what's the most likely diagnosis? Free wall rupture, rupture of a papillary muscle, an acute ventricular septal defect, he's had a pulmonary embolism, or he's infarcted his RV. There's a number of hints on this. Um, look at um, the chest X-ray, look at the physical exam, look at the murmur that was mentioned, what does that all sound like? 
So there's a couple of things that could be due to a number of these. Um, so you can go into florid pulmonary edema with a papillary um, uh, rupture, uh, but um, listen to how the murmur is described. Uh, the murmur is described much more like an acute VSD, and you've got the parasternal lift. What are you feeling with the parasternal lift? Your feeling is RV, push, pushing against the sternum because all this blood is now going from the LV into the RV, so it's causing the, the, the lift. So you put all of that together, and actually acute VSD is a more likely diagnosis with his presentation. Um, rupture of papillary muscle is a close second uh, because of, again, going into pulmonary edema. But those, the harshness of the murmur all across the pericardium, the loudness of it, the parasternal lift, that is typical of a VSD. Now, I know this is a hard slide to see, but this just points through all the medications we use in these patients. And I just want to point out a couple of things. This is dividing all the medications into inotropy, chronotropy, and dromotropy. Inotropy is how well contractility. Chronotropy is heart rate through the sinus node. Dromotropy is heart rate through the AV node. Vasodilators, antianginals, and have they prolonged survival in MIs or heart failure. And so let's just look at some of these different agents. Let's start with digoxin. When do we use digoxin? Um, digoxin will slightly slow the heart rate. Um, and, but it has never been shown to prolong survival. And so digoxin is really used if you have ongoing heart failure symptoms despite being on good medical therapy, or more likely you have ongoing heart failure symptoms on good medical therapy and you have an atrial arrhythmia and you can't push the beta blocker or calcium channel blocker anymore, you gotta get the heart rate under control. So it's really for arrhythmias in heart failure where we use it. It has never been shown to prolong survival. Whereas beta blockers, even though they're negative inotropic, they slow the heart rate, slow conduction through the AV node. They have been shown to prolong um, survival post-MI and in heart failure. And so these are the drugs of choice for arrhythmias and angina and heart failure and post-MI or beta blockers. Nifedipine has no impact on heart rate. So we don't use nifedipine for heart rate. It's only used to lower blood pressure, no impact on survival. Diltiazem and verapamil do have efficacy in slowing heart rate at the sinus node and the AV node, but they've never been shown to prolong survival. And in patients with significant LV dysfunction, they actually worsen survival. So beta blockers are the drugs of choice for slowing the heart rate. It's only when they're contraindicated do we think of these others. And if you've got bad heart failure, digoxin is preferred over the calcium channel blockers. Nitrates post-MI, they only really have been shown to have benefit in patients with bad heart failure who are already treated with an ACE and a beta blocker or have a contraindication to it when you add it with hydralazine. So that's the only place where nitrates have shown prolonged survival. By themselves, post-MI, they have no survival advantage. Of course, ACE inhibitors and ARBs prolong survival post-MI and uh, in heart failure. Hydralazine only when combined with nitrates, and again, only after you've treated them with ACE inhibitors and beta blockers, or if there's a contraindication to ACE inhibitors, so they're on beta blockers, and then you use nitrates and hydralazine together. Spironolactone has shown survival um, post-heart uh, uh, failure. It's shown reduced morbidity in large MIs, but survival advantages in heart failure, and then aspirin, of course, post-MI um, and statins post-MI. Important to note that statins have not shown improved survival in patients with significant LV systolic heart failure. As a matter of fact, the studies that have been done in LV systolic heart failure show no survival advantage. So the statin survival is in patients post-MI, 
not in patients with advanced heart failure. Now, obviously, some have both, but uh, it's not been shown in, in heart failure. So this is a good summary just to let you know. What I would concentrate on in this is what are the drugs that have clearly shown a significant survival advantage. That's what boards like to ask. So you've got a statistically significant prolongation of life. And just to summarize them again, beta blockers post-MI and in heart failure, ACE inhibitors post-MI and in heart failure, or ARBs, those are the main ones that have shown survival. Aspirin post-MI and statins post-MI, those are the ones that are mainly the survival advantage um, in our patients. NSAIDs try to avoid them. They may actually make things worse, not better. If you absolutely need an NSAID, naproxen is probably the least harmful of the NSAIDs in coronary disease patients. Older patients with ACS should be evaluated and managed in a similar way to younger patients, and you should obviously consider their overall health and mortality before you decide on therapy. They do have increased procedural and revascularization uh, risks than younger patients. However, their benefits are the same or possibly even greater um, in older adults if you revascularize them. A brief mention about uh, drug-induced MIs like cocaine. Um, their cocaine can cause an acute coronary syndrome, an acute MI, many times through the same mechanism of other MIs caused by plaque rupture. It also can cause an aortic dissection. Sometimes you'll see it delayed after the use. Um, nitroglycerin and calcium channel blockers are the drugs of choice if you think of cocaine uh, because of the um, vasodilatation of the coronary arteries that they can do. Beta blockers are relatively concerning because they may actually cause more vasoconstriction in patients with cocaine. You do coronary angiography just like you would in any other patient with an MI. They're having persistent chest pain. They're having ST segment elevation. They have high-risk features like high biomarkers. Um, so you're still going to do it. Again, remember, most of the patients who have cocaine-induced myocardial infarction have plaque rupture. They have a thrombus. They're having a traditional MI. Some are due to spasm, and you'll turn, figure that out on the coronary angiography. Use of beta blockers is usually not recommended. If you're going to use a beta blocker, use a beta alpha blocker so you don't have um, the increased risk for spasm. So carvedilol or labetalol is probably okay, but usually it's calcium channel blockers and nitrates that are used. Methamphetamine, I would treat them the same way as cocaine patients uh, if they present having taken methamphetamine. So you have a 27-year-old with chest pain, agitation, confusion, tachycardia, hypertension, and an EKG that I think you've seen before with anterior ST segment elevation. Which of the following should you order? Procainamide, an exercise stress test with imaging, an NSAID, a drug screen, or a cardiac uh, MRI. So you're concerned about the etiology of why this patient is coming in. So what should we order for him? And I think in him, you want to know if you've got another drug that we're going to change our treatment. So you want to know if he's had cocaine that could have done that, and so a urine drug screen quickly done to see if that's the cause. Which of the following patients would be most appropriate for immediate reperfusion? A 47-year-old with a prior MI who has one millimeter ST segment elevation in leads 2-3 AVF V1 through V6, or an 80-year-old with a recent right hemiparesis 4 millimeter ST segment elevation in V1 to V6, or a 65-year-old with two hours of chest pain and a new left bundle branch block, or a 65-year-old man with a new T-wave inversion in V1 to V4, 
or a 30-year-old who has corrected tetralogy of Fallot and two hours of chest pain and palpitations. So the question is, which patient is most appropriate for immediate reperfusion therapy? Which patient has the potential for the greatest benefit is basically what they're asking. And 90% of you say it's going to be the 65-year-old man with two hours of chest pain and new left bundle branch block. So this is the patient who's at the highest risk. So this is the one that's the most appropriate. He's at the highest risk, he's going to get the greatest benefit. Patient number one probably has pericarditis, so probably shouldn't, uh, shouldn't get it because he had a prior recent MI and now has diffuse ischemic segment elevation. This patient just had a recent stroke, has a relative contraindication to reperfusion. This one's having a non-STEMI, has a contraindication to reperfusion. And this patient may not have an acute coronary syndrome at all because she's younger and her pretest probability is lower. So it's really this patient is going to get the greatest benefit and uh, has the, no contraindications to reperfusion. 68-year-old comes to the ED, 12 hours of chest pain, heart rate is 70, blood pressure 90 over 50, cannon A waves in the jugular venous pulse, and he has a third heart sound at the apex. His initial EKG is as follows. So look carefully at the EKG and look to see what you can see. Look for patterns. Look to see if there's something on here that's an unusual pattern. And which of the following statements is true? Fibronunc therapy is likely to markedly reduce his 30-day mortality. B, he likely is going to require an ICD. C, an exercise treadmill test would likely improve his rhythm. D, an echo showing an EF of 30% would be an indication for angiography. Or E, this patient has an excellent prognosis. So what did that EKG show? What did anybody see on that EKG? Did everybody see the P waves marching through? Did you see the heart block on that, uh, that patient's EKG? So um, I see we have answers that are all over the place on, uh, on this one. So in this patient, we're looking to see what's going to be a factor that's going to increase his risk and need urgent coronary angiography, and that would be if he's got a low ejection fraction. So the answer is, if his ejection fraction is 30%, we now have a high-risk individual. He's having an inferior MI, most likely, although if you look at his EKG, his ST segment elevation is about one millimeter. It's very minimal ST segment elevation. Uh, what he's showing is this um, complete heart block. So it looks like he's having an uncomplicated, mild, or small inferior MI, and so fibrinolytic therapy is, is um, likely to help, uh, but it's not going to markedly decrease his mortality. He certainly doesn't need an ICD at this point. We need a reperfusion, see what his um, uh, uh, EF is going to be. An exercise stress test probably won't necessarily help his, his rhythm at this point in time. It's likely to be transient go away on its own. He does have a good prognosis, but um, this one is the best answer because if he has a low EF, it's an indication that he should go to a um, more emergent uh, revascularization. 56-year-old, ED, six hours, constant, dull chest pain. It's at rest. It's with exercise, lasting 20 minutes to several hours. His exam is normal. Cardiac markers are negative after these six hours. His EKG is normal. What would you do? Just discharge him, follow him up as an outpatient. B, start antianginals, follow him as an outpatient. C, absorb him for about eight hours, do another set of markers, obtain another EKG. D, admit him, start him on aspirin, clopridogrel, low molecular weight heparin, or do immediate angiography. What would you do? 
So the real question to ask yourself, have we diagnosed an ACS yet? So we really haven't diagnosed an ACS yet, but is there a possibility that he could? Is this a possible or probable ACS? It is. There's atypical features, uh, but he's only been here for six hours. It's really encouraging that the initial markers were negative, but maybe we're just before they're going to become positive. So he's somebody that should do a so-called rule-out. So we should watch him for another eight hours, do another set of markers, another EKG, and make sure that he's not having an acute coronary syndrome. A 67-year-old, three hours of chest pain, no contraindications to reperfusion. Here's her EKG. The following agents have been shown to have the most favorable effect on prognosis. Strepto alone, streptokinase plus heparin, TPA alone, TPA plus sub-Q heparin, or TPA plus intravenous heparin, which gives the best outcome, best prognosis. The GUSTO trial was the one that looked at these different things, and they showed that if you give TPA plus intravenous heparin, you had the best uh, outcomes, better than sub-Q heparin, better than TPA alone. Uh, streptokinase plus intravenous heparin works better than streptokinase alone, but TPA works better than streptokinase. So TPA plus intravenous heparin gives the best prognosis and the most favorable outcome. It also has a slightly higher bleeding risk as well. 72-year-old male with CAD presents with three hours of chest pain, heart rate's 85, blood pressure 145 over 95, moderate elevation of his jugular venous pulse, his first troponin I is elevated at 13.6, and he has this EKG. So remember, EKG, you want to look at it, STEMI, non-STEMI, what do we see, what should you do? We should reperfuse him with TPA and heparin. We should avoid beta blockers because of his heart failure. We should perform a stress test to determine if coronary angiography is necessary. We should treat him with medical therapy alone, or we should refer him for urgent coronary angiography. So you looked to see if there was ST segment elevation. Did you see ST segment elevation? We did not see ST segment elevation. So now we have a non-ST segment elevation MI, since his troponin is pretty high was 13.6, if I remember correctly. So um, he's got some higher risk features that if you look on the more immediate angiography versus conservative therapy, the high troponin would put him more in the intermediate, so he should go to the cath lab. Previous bypass surgery, EF is 25%. A halter shows four episodes of non-sustained ventricular tachycardia. Which treatment is appropriate? Amiodarone therapy, beta blocker, an ACE inhibitor, aspirin beta blocker and an ACE inhibitor, aspirin beta blocker, ACE inhibitor, and an ICD. So you need to know what are the indications for an ICD. He's on medical therapy. He's um, 40 days out on medical therapy, still has a low EF. He should be on an aspirin beta blocker and ACE inhibitor for his heart failure. His EF remains below the 30 to 35% range, so its indication is for ICD therapy. 66-year-old, two hours of chest pain, has diabetes, smoking, dyslipidemia, and the following EKG. Is there ST-segment elevation? Is there ST-segment depression? This one's a tricky one. Look at this EKG carefully. What should you do? Stress test with perfusion imaging, CTA, catheter-based angiography and PCI, 
stress echo, radionucleotide ventriculography, or a MUGA scan. So is it a STEMI or a non-STEMI? So if it's a STEMI, she should go right for angiography. So look at this EKG. This one is the tricky one. So what do we see on this EKG? ST segment depression, V2, V3, V4. But look at these R waves. These R waves start out normal and grow really, really tall. This is a isolated posterior MI where you have ST segment elevation and QA formation in the posterior leads. This is the one where if you put it up to the mirror, you can see the ST segment uh, elevation. So this is the hard one to catch because it looks like a non-ST segment elevation MI, but it's actually a posterior STEMI uh, where these STs are up and the Q waves are growing on the R waves. So this is a posterior STEMI. But even if you didn't catch that it was a posterior STEMI, this is a high-risk patient with a non-STEMI until proven otherwise, still should go to the cath lab um, because of the um, other high-risk uh, features for this, uh, this patient. So I think you got 100% on that one, so that's great. 64-year-old, STEMI, aspirin, beta blocker, ACE inhibitor, and a statin. And he was standing at the nurse's station, and uh, he showed the nurse this is what his telemetry showed. So look at his heart rate, P waves, QRSs, what do you see? What should you do? Run him back to his room and put him on dibutamine, or run him to the EP lab and put in a pacemaker, do an E-phys study, decrease his beta blocker, or do a coronary angiogram. Asymptomatic, standing at the nurse's station, feels fine, heart rate's a little slow, he's got some heart block, and so the first thing we should do is take away some of the drugs that are blocking his AV node and see if it all goes away. He's asymptomatic. There's no need right now for a permanent pacemaker, dibutamine, or an EP study. He's not having ongoing ischemia or angina, so doesn't need an angiogram. So decreases beta blocker, see if it all goes away. 74-year-old comes to the ED, chest pain, dyspnea, has a non-STEMI. Exam and chest X-ray show pulmonary edema. She's given a beta blocker, morphine, nitroglycerin, and 160 milligrams of furosemide. Initially, she improves, but then she becomes hypotensive. So you put in a right heart catheter, and these are her following pressures. Right atrial pressure is 2. Remember, 0 to 5 is normal, so this is normal. PA pressure is 20 over 10, well within the normal range. Pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is 6. Up to 12 is normal, so it's nice and low. So what should we do? Put an intraarch balloon pump, send her for an emergency PCI, give her fibrinolytic therapy, start an infusion of normal saline, or give her blood cultures and empiric antibiotics. So remember, in the stem of the question, we gave her 160 milligrams of furosemide and all those medications to lower her blood pressure, and all of her pre pressures in her heart are low. She's got low filling pressures, low right atrial pressures. We've overdiuresed her. We've made her hypotensive. So what we should do is give her a little bit of her saline back and see if it all improves. Uh, there's no evidence in the stem that she's got an infection, um, and she's not, uh, this is not because of cardiogenic shock at this point in time, so you're going to start with saline and see if it improves. So we're going to change gears a little bit and do some peripheral arterial disease in the last uh, half hour. 50% um, of patients with peripheral arterial disease present asymptomatically. About 15% will have claudication. Um, some will have just uh, functional problems where their legs get tired, 
and it's only 1% or 2% that have critical limb ischemia. Diagnosis is made by a typical symptoms of claudication or a branchial, achial, brachial uh, blood pressure um, that can uh, determine the disease. And angiography is probably still the best test for defining the location of the disease, although CT angiography and MRA are becoming um, tests that are very good at finding the location of the disease as well. For an ankle brachial index, it's just comparing blood pressures in the arms and the legs. 1 to 1.29 ratio is normal. 0.9 uh, to 1 is borderline. Mild to moderate disease is 0.41 up to 0.9. And severe disease is less than or equal to 0.4. Usually those patients are fairly symptomatic when it's in the severe disease range. The prevalence, of course, increases with age, as you would expect. Um, it's a little bit more common in males up to later ages uh, where it equals out. Um, but uh, males have a little bit more common of PAD. And it's more common in African-American patients uh, than in other uh, ethnic uh, groups. The risk factor, smoking by far, is the most potent risk factor for um, arterial disease, aortic aneurysms and peripheral arterial disease, with diabetes a close uh, second. And the other risk factors are on there as well. But smoking is a very potent risk factor for PAD. Um, At-risk populations are patients with diabetes and additional risk factors. Patients age 50 up to 70 who are smokers or have diabetes, older age, obviously if they have symptoms or abnormal pulses on exam, and if they have known extensive atherosclerotic disease in other vascular beds, they're at increased risk of having peripheral vascular disease. And of course, long-term survival is much lower if you have PAD, and it's worse if it's symptomatic compared to asymptomatic. But asymptomatic, the survival is lower than in normal subjects. MRA can be very helpful in identifying where the lesion is. Uh, it gives very um, excellent uh, localization without uh, radiation or contrast, uh, or it has some contrast, but um, is uh, now better than uh, many of the studies that are done. Sometimes can be done with non-contrast. CT angiography also is very good, although it does require radiation and some contrast. Here's a lesion that you can see here as well. How do we treat it? Uh, we want to look at both outcomes of the limb uh, that's involved and cardiovascular outcomes. So improve quality of life and ability to walk and prevent progression. But remember, anybody with PAD has a much higher cardiovascular risk. And so we not only want to save their limb, but we want to decrease the morbidity and mortality of stroke and MI. So you're going to more aggressively treat them for reducing stroke and MI, as well as for their limbs. This is one of the statin groups. If you've got clinically evident peripheral arterial disease, they should be on statins, which reduces their risk of stroke and MI. And of course, they should stop smoking, treat their blood pressure. Beta blockers are not contraindicated in PAD. This was taught uh, years ago, but it does not seem to worsen claudication. So if they have an indication for a beta blocker, you can use it. They are a group that requires high-intensity statin and treatment of diabetes. All patients should be on some form of aspirin. Clopidogrel turns out to be as effective as aspirin, so in patients who can't take aspirin, clopidogrel is a good alternative therapy. Two other drugs you can consider are celostazole and, and pentoxifiline. Uh, celostazole has been shown to improve symptoms and walking distance. Just be careful, you can't use it in heart failure. So that would be the next drug of choice. Pentoxifiline is a second-line agent. There's controversy if it actually helps. Um, so it's a less effective uh, agent, so celostazole is the one that is usually recommended. But the main treatment in mild PAD is exercise, 
walking to um, the, when they develop claudication, then slow down, walk some more. So you need to have a little bit of claudication to try to um, make uh, 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 peripheral blood vessels uh, form, so collateral blood vessels. So walking is by far the treatment of choice and actually improves walking distance and quality of life better than medical therapy. So you have a 60-year-old who smokes and has diabetes. He has pain in his calves when he walks about two blocks. ABIs, 0.6 in his right, 0.7 in his left lower extremity. Which of the following is true based on current evidence? Pentoxifylline, 400 milligrams is the first line of therapy. B, he should not walk as fast or as far. C, celostazole can improve his symptoms and increase his walking distance. D, diabetes, you should control the A1C to 8.5% and it's in line with his treatment goals, what is the answer? Well, I've already just mentioned to you that walking is really good for him, so he should walk. Pentoxifylline is not a drug of first choice. It doesn't work very well. Diabetes, we want it controlled, and so 7% would better than 8.5%. So celostazole is the one that's been shown to improve his walking time and his symptoms. When do we revascularize if they don't respond to exercise and medical therapy or if they're severely disabled or if they have other diseases that would limit uh, exercise, even if the claudication could improve, if they have an overall favorable prognosis with surgery and a favorable lesion morphology is when we would revascularize. And usually it's endovascular revascularization, uh, percutaneous intervention with stents, Surgical intervention with bypass depends a lot on the anatomy and the extents of the disease. If you have multiple lesions that can't be reached with a stent or more distal disease, then bypass surgery is usually recommended. So percutaneous is for um, isolated iliac femoral and popliteal lesions that are relatively short, and you can put a catheter and a stent in. Stenting is recommended for all iliac lesions. Surgery is a good alternative for multiple or long lesions or more distal lesions. But remember that there's a fairly um, high mortality range for surgery because uh, many of these patients also have disease in the other vascular beds as well. Five-year patency rates are very good for the larger blood vessels, so for aortic, iliac, and femoral bypasses, uh, patency rates are very good. Patency rates become lower the further down you go in the vascular tree. The smaller the vessel, the less patency rate over time. An acute lower limb ischemia is divided uh, by um, a number of different uh, groups into these different types of uh, classes. First class is um, the viable class where there's no immediate threatening to the limb, just some symptoms, and uh, usually uh, these patients can be treated conservatively unless symptoms persist. And then there's marginal, immediate, and irreversible lower limb ischemia. Marginal means that it's salvageable if you promptly treat them. Usually you're already going to have uh, some signs of uh, sensory loss in the distal areas, and many times um, you're, you're going to lose um, uh, signals uh, in the arteries because they're being occluded. Immediate means that um, uh, salvageable if you immediately revascularize them. These are usually patients who have rest pain. It's involving more than their toes. Uh, their muscles are weak. Um, and then irreversible is you've now got major tissue, nerve damage, um, uh, you've even lost symptoms, uh, you've lost uh, nerve uh, symptoms. In these patients, a lot of times revascularizing them won't help, and many times you have to do amputations in those patients. For critical limb ischemia, this is ischemia which is having rest pain, non-healing wounds or gangrene, 
At six months, the mortality rate is about 20%. 35% uh, will need an amputation. 45% uh, will be able to be um, alive without amputation. So you can see it's a very high risk when you have critical limb ischemia. Remember, there's other forms of peripheral arterial disease like arteritis, um, connective tissue diseases, giant cell or tachyasus, trauma, Berger's disease, which is a disease of usually younger male smokers, or the entrapment uh, syndromes. To give you an example, here's a 28-year-old uh, male smoker, gangrene of his right foot and superficial thrombophlebitis. What's his most likely diagnosis? A, Berger's. B, a right iliofemoral atherosclerosis. C, cardiac emboli to the right platelet artery. D, he has necrotizing fasciitis. Or E, has a chronic pressure ulceration. So remember to look at all of the information in the stem. He's young, so what's his likelihood of having atherosclerotic disease? He's a smoker, so what smoking disease causes this type of thing? And that's Berger's disease, and so that is the answer. Good. It's also called thrombolitis, thromboangiitis obliterans. It's the medium and small blood vessels, so usually the, the wrist. You can have a positive Allen's uh, test, the wrist and the hands. Here's an um, advanced picture of what the infarctions can look like in patients with uh, Berger's uh, disease. Entrapment symptoms are uncommon, but they can occur. Thoracic outlet syndrome is one. Young men can also get a pop uh, popliteal artery entrapment. Uh, it's a strange uh, 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 symptoms. It causes claudification in the arch of the foot, uh, but not when they're running, only with uh, walking. Depends on how that entrapment gets the artery, and so that's one question you can ask for entrapment. Lumbar stenosis can mimic PAD, so spinal stenosis can produce pseudoclaudication. Usually spinal stenosis is relieved by sitting, but not by standing. And anything that compresses the spine, uh, standing, walking, you know, moving quickly, going downhill makes it worse. So if you get that um, history, think of a spinal stenosis. Female patient, reduced upper, upper, left upper extremity pulses, normal pulses in the right upper extremity and in the lower extremities, and has a very elevated erythrocyte sedimentation rate. What's her likely diagnosis? Mitral stenosis with embolization to the left subclavian, atherosclerosis of the left subclavian, coarctation of the aorta, tachyostus arteritis, or thoracic outlet obstruction. What's her most likely diagnosis? So the high SED rate should give you a hint that we're talking about an inflammatory disease, and the one inflammatory disease here is tachyasus, um, and it can affect uh, those larger arteries like the subclavian uh, artery, and so that's the most likely diagnosis for, for her. And so here's a picture of uh, tachyasus. Um, this is the aorta. Here's the right carotid, left carotid, and the subclavian, and you can see how markedly narrow, severely narrowed the subclavian is and the left carotid for that matter, uh, but that's what's typical of Takayasu's um, arteritis. How do we treat Berger's? You have to stop smoking. How do we treat arteritis? You treat the underlying arteritis. So it's usually a connective tissue disease, and you're going to be put on the anti-inflammatory treatments for the arteritis. Venous thrombosis. Um, a venogram is still the gold standard, but ultrasound with Doppler is a very good way of diagnosing thrombotic changes, especially in the larger veins. And color Doppler can uh, determine if it's an obstructive uh, thrombus. 
What about an acute arterial um, occlusion? Most acute arterial occlusions are due to an emboli. And where do those emboli usually come from? Almost always they come from the heart. They also could come from the ascending aorta due to atheromatous disease. But the vast majority of an acute arterial clot uh, is from a uh, emboli from in, coming from the heart. Usually it's AFib and a clot in the left atrial appendage. You can also get aneurysms uh, that can produce um, a clot in the aneurysm that breaks off. Heparin is obviously one of the drugs of first choice to prevent propagation or a new clot, and embolectomy is usually the treatment to preserve the limb where the artery went to. Few words on vasospastic disease, such as Raynaud's phenomenon, which is constriction of small arteries and arterioles in cold weather. It can at times lead to uh, acrocyanosis in the digits of the hand. It's more common in women. And many times you'll see that levito reticularis, that mottled appearance. Here's a picture where you can see the uh, white blanching of the tips of the fingers and some of the red and purplish color changes with typical uh, Raynaud's. Another form of spasm is coronary artery spasm, also called Prinzmetal's angina. This causes transient and usually marked ST segment elevation. Um, it usually occurs at rest, usually in the early morning hours. Consider it in younger individuals who have transient ST segment elevation, which spontaneously goes away. This is part of the reason why it's recommended with anybody who has new onset chest pain, give them a quick nitroglycerin. If the pain goes away right away and the STs come right back down, uh, that's uh, almost pathognomonic for coronary artery spasm. It's a rare disease. And you need to see the ST segment elevation in association with the chest pain in order to make the diagnosis, uh, but it's something to consider, and nitroglycerin um, uh, can very quickly uh, treat it. Also, calcium channel blockers like amlodipine and others can also dilate coronary arteries and are the treatment of choice for coronary vasospastic disease. So here you have a 35-year-old male. Squeezing chest pain occurs often on at rest. Here's his EKG. Notice the anterior leads. He's sent to the cardiac cath lab because of the ST segment elevation, but his cardiologist calls you and says he has normal coronaries. His left ventriculogram is also normal. So what's his most likely diagnosis? He has a myocardial bridge. He has Prince Metal's angina. He has Berger's. He has Raynaud's. He has Takasubo cardiomyopathy. It's going to be 100% because I already told you what this one is, right? Everyone knows what this one is. ST segment elevation at rest. What's the likely diagnosis? Everyone gets Prinzmetal's disease, good. So what's a myocardial bridge? A myocardial bridge is a piece of myocardial tissue that goes over a coronary artery. Most of the time, it's absolutely asymptomatic. Sometimes it can cause exertional chest pain uh, because it's pinching the artery with exertion. Sometimes it will do that. Berger's, I already told you, small vessels in the limbs. It's not gonna cause coronary artery disease. Raynaud's is small vessel spasm in the hands. Um, although it may be associated sometimes with Prinz metals, it's a separate phenomenon. And Takasubo cardiomyopathy, we're going to talk about tomorrow when we talk about heart failure. That's a form of heart failure. He had a normal LV gram, so we know he doesn't have heart failure. So the answer is Prinz metals angina. What about carotid artery disease? Um, strokes are the third leading cause of death in this country with over half a million new strokes a year. And atherosclerosis accounts for about a third of all strokes. And there are more strokes in women than in men. And that's probably because the men are dying of their heart attacks and don't get to be old enough to have the strokes. That's why there's probably more in women. If you have a patient with a carotid brewery, um, those who have had a TIA are much more likely to have a stroke 
than those who have not had a TIA. So symptoms with a brewery are much more predictive of a future stroke than asymptomatic uh, breweries. Patients with atherosclerotic carotid disease are much more likely to have an MI than to have a TIA. So think about that for a minute. So if you've got carotid artery disease, if you've got atherosclerosis in your carotid arteries, we think stroke. And yes, it could cause a stroke, but it's actually a very strong marker for having a heart attack. So especially asymptomatic carotid artery disease, you're much more likely you're going to have a heart attack than a stroke. Luckily, treatments for both are about the same, lipids, blood pressure control, antiplatelets, but you're more likely to have a heart attack. Carotid ultrasound is indicated in patients with brewies, um, definitely with symptoms. So a brewie with symptoms, you should look at the carotid arteries. Asymptomatic brewies, most people recommend to look at it as well. You could do an MRA or a CTA as acceptable alternatives. Carotid angiography, obviously, is the definitive study, but MRAs and CTAs are very helpful as well. A carotid ultrasound can look at the carotid artery. You can do color flow, and you can easily find if there is a stenosis seen here where you have the internal carotid artery, which is markedly stenosed right at this level um, uh, that uh, can make the diagnosis. And then a CTA can give beautiful pictures. Here is the internal carotid, and you can see it's markedly stenosed in this area uh, right, uh, right there. And carotid angiography, of course, can show it. Carotid angiography can show more than that. In this patient, there's a stenosis with a big ulcer in the carotid artery. This is a very high-risk carotid artery. This one should be stented or treated with endarterectomy. So indications for endarterectomy, number one, again, remember what I said earlier. What is the indication for almost everything we do if you have symptoms? So the major indication for carotid endarectomy is you have symptomatic patients with a significant stenosis in their carotid arteries as long as they have a reasonable surgical mortality. Asymptomatic patients can be considered if you have a high-grade stenosis and the risk of mortality or stroke is low. Now, the studies show that there is some benefit between 60 up to 100%, but most of the benefit was 80% or greater. So most of the time, if it's asymptomatic, you'll see that patients recommend considering carotid endarterectomy 80% or greater. Um, it's with the symptomatic ones that it's anything greater than 50 to 60% that it's usually recommended. What are the preventive modalities in patients with peripheral arterial disease? Indefinite aspirin. If aspirin is contraindicated, then indefinite clopridogrel. High-intensity statin, 40 or 80 of Atorva, 20 or 40 of Resuva. Blood pressure control. And if they're still having symptoms, then you can consider these other agents like celastazole for claudication. What about aortic diseases? Aortic dissection, there's a few connective tissue diseases that increase the risk of aortic disease, like Marfan's. Marfan's is patients who have skeletal deformities with uh, kyphoscoliosis, long limbs, hypermobility, but they all get aortic aneurysms, mitral valve prolapse, and uh, many of them have dislocation of their lenses. If their ascending aorta is greater than 4.5 to 5 centimeters, usually surgery is indicated. If there's a family history of a dissection, then we'll do surgery even at a lower level. And obviously, if it's expanding rapidly or if the aortic dilatation is causing aortic insufficiency or aortic regurgitation, surgery is recommended. And here's a picture of a long-limbed individual with a lens dislocation. These are some of the um, findings that we see in Marfan's uh, syndrome. So Louis Dietz syndrome is a very rare uh, syndrome where there's a cleft palate, very tortuous arteries, 
uh, hypertelarism, that's the, the eyes are further apart. But many skeletal features that are similar to Marfan's, and they also can dissections of the aorta and other um, arteries. And so again, if they have aorta that's getting uh, greater than about the 4, 4.2 centimeters is when we start thinking of um, uh, uh, correcting the aorta. And here's a picture of a young girl with this particular syndrome and very tortuous aorta in these uh, young individuals. Ehlers-Danlos. Ehlers-Danlos is a very complicated set of at least five different types of diseases, but the Ehlers-Danlos um, that is the um, one that we need to think about are the individuals who have very friable, thin, translucent skin. They're prone to ruptures of uh, GI organs. Um, they're prone to um, uh, aortic aneurysms and rupture of large arteries. And uh, their uh, surgery is complicated because they have very friable tissue, but they need to have constant surveillance of their aortas because they um, have it as well. Um, so it's not all the types of Ehlers-Danlos, but the uh, type where um, you've got the uh, hypermobility, the, uh, the translucent, friable skin, we have to image them to look for aortic aneurysms as well. And here's somebody with the very um, hyper-mobile uh, skin, mobile joints with a, a type of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Turner syndrome is, uh, in, um, uh, is exemplified by a short st stature in, in young women. They have amenorrhea, but they have a high instance of a bicuspid aortic valve. They also have a high instance of a coarctation of the aorta. Bicuspid aortic valves are also associated with aortic root dilatation, so they can get aortic aneurysms as well. And so they have an increased dissection risk as well because of the dilatation of the ascending aorta and the coarctation of the aorta. Here's a young girl with a Turner syndrome. And this one has a coarctation. Here is the aorta. Here is the right carotid, left carotid, left subclavian, and there's a narrowing right there. This is where coarctation of the aorta occurs. It's a narrowing in the vast majority right after the takeoff of the left subclavian, and you get this narrowing of the aorta, coarctation of the aorta. So we have a 30-year-old man, mid-back pain for three days, so severe he can't sleep. He's six foot eight inches with long spindly fingers and a pectus excavatum. Femoral pulses are somewhat diminished. What is true with respect to aortic dissection? Descending of the ascending aorta should be treated medically. Appropriate medical therapy for dissection is IV nitroprusside. Lowering aortic systolic pressures is the most important aspect of medical therapy. All descending thoracic aortic dissections require immediate surgery or dissection can occur in the third trimester of pregnancy without any predisposing factors. So the answers to this will give you pretty much all the things you need to know about dissecting aortic um, aneurysms. Dissection of the ascending aorta is a surgical emergency. So ascending is always surgery. That one's wrong. Medical therapy for dissection, it depends. So if you have a descending thoracic aorta, it's blood pressure control. You can use intravenous nitroprusside, but there's many other things you can use as well, so it's not that one alone. Lowering systolic blood pressure is important with medical therapy, but it's not just lowering, it's what drugs you use um, is, is important, and it depends on where the dissection is. Ascending um, aneurysm uh, dissections, it's not important to lower the blood pressure, it's important to send them to surgery. All descending thoracic aortas, this is what is medical therapy. Immediate surgery is ascending. So this is actually the right answer. 
Um, it can occur in the third trimester of pregnancy without any predisposing factors. This is the one group you got to be worried about because you don't expect it in this group and you can get a sudden dissection. So if you get a third trimester pregnant woman who suddenly gets chest pain boring through to the back, you've got to think about it in, those, in, that, uh, in that group of patients. So what is the um, pretest risk factors? Who are the highest risk uh, patients? Anyone who has these connective tissue diseases such as Marfan's, uh, Louis Dietz, uh, Ehlers-Danlos, Turner's, coarctations, if you have a family history. Aortic valve disease, especially bicuspid aortic valve, if you had recent aortic manipulation, or if you have a known thoracic aneurysm, those are patients who at increased risk. And then there's other risk factors that can precipitate dissection, uncontrolled hypertension like you get with a FIO, using um, amphetamine or cocaine, sudden real heavy weight lifting or chest trauma, if you've got arteritis, pregnancy, as I mentioned, polycystic kidney disease, uh, which causes significant hypertension, chronic steroid or immunosuppressant therapy, or infections that can get into the aorta, these are extenuating factors that can increase the risk. And high-risk pain features, this is pain that bores straight through to the back, is abrupt, it's much more intense than myocardial infarctions, and has kind of a ripping, stabbing, or very sharp quality, think aortic dissection. And if there's a pulse deficit, a, a blood pressure deficit, uh, uh, differential of greater than 20 millimeters, a new neurologic deficit, or a new aortic insufficiency murmur, that's where the dissection can dissect into the aortic valve. Think about it as well. And so if you have some of these high-risk features, you want to call for a surgical consultation right away and image the aorta right away. Usually that's TEE because you can get that quickest, but CTA or MRA are acceptable for immediate imaging. You want to get an EKG because the dissection can dissect into a coronary artery and cause an MI, especially inferior MI, so you want to know if that's happening. Chest X-ray to uh, look and see if you can see that it's a ruptured. TEE to look at the dissection or some sort of secondary imaging to make sure that you've got it. If you do a TE and don't see it, and your suspicion is still very high, get another imaging test to rule it out. Medical management um, is to uh, give beta blockers. They're the drugs of choice if you can um, uh, give them without a contraindication. If a beta blocker is contraindicated, diltiazem or verapamil can be used as an alternative. Uh, if the blood pressure remains high, you can then add other agents, usually an ACE inhibitor. For long-term treatment of a chronic um, descending thoracic aorta dissection, it's usually a beta blocker plus an ACE or an ARB is the drugs of choice in those patients. If you've got acute aortic insufficiency, these patients can go right into heart failure, then you don't want to give a beta blocker in those uh, patients. Um, and if you are going to use vasodilators, you start with a beta blocker first, then you can add the vasodilators a second. But beta blockers are the uh, drugs of first choice. Ascending aortic dissections are a surgical emergency. The only treatment that prolongs uh, survival is surgery, so they need to go to surgery right away, and they can also get other things done at the same time if they need to. Coronary disease can be bypassed. Acute MR, the valve can be treated. We divide it into two types, uh, proximal and distal, and there's the DeBakey and Stanford criteria, but uh, basically the Stanford A's and Dibakis 1 and 2's are ascending. These are the ones that need to have surgery. And the distal ones are the Dibakey 3's and Stanford um, B's. Uh, these are descending. These many times can be treated uh, medically. Um, and so that's just shown here. Dibakey uh, type 1 
is ascending and descending. Type 2 is ascending alone. Type 3 is descending alone. Stanford A is any ascending. Stanford B is any descending. The ascending surgery, the Bs can be medical, or the descendings can be medical therapy. Ascendings are at greater risk of rupture. That's why they're an indication for surgery. Descendings can be treated medically unless they have a complication. So if it, it um, dissects into a vital organ, they may need to have uh, surgery. Proximal dissections can also damage the aortic valve, cause AI. They can dissect into the pericardium, causing tamponade. Uh, they can, um, uh, descending thoracic uh, dissections typically cause more back pain uh, and pains that are more migratory. Dissections can re-enter the aorta and obstruct arteries like iliac arteries. If they obstruct other arteries, you need to have surgery to relieve the obstruction. A coarctation is a congenital abnormality that causes persistent hypertension in the upper limbs. Unfortunately, even after you um, treat and cure the coarctation, the blood pressure may remain elevated. It is associated with a bicuspid aortic valve in about 50% of patients. Blood pressures are higher in the arms than in the legs. EKG can show LVH, and the chest X-ray, as I showed you earlier today, can show that lib, rib notching as a pathognomonic finding. Tachyosus and giant cell arteritis, these are inflammatory diseases of the artery wall, and so it's usually anti-inflammatory treatments, such as high-dose steroids, and we usually monitor inflammatory markers like SED rates and C-reactive proteins. If somebody needs revascularization, you usually want to get the inflammation under control first, and so usually you treat the acute inflammation with high-dose steroids. C-reactive protein comes down, then if they need surgery, they can do um, surgery. Then a few more words about an aortic aneurysm. The United States um, Prospective Services Task Force recommends that all men age 65 to 75 who have ever smoked cigarettes should get a one-time abdominal ultrasound screening for a AAA. So if you've got a man who has smoked and is in his older age, they should get an ultrasound. It is not the same recommendation for women because the absolute number of, of uh, aortic aneurysms in women who smoked was much lower. So the United States Preventive uh, Services Task Force did not recommend screening in women, only in men who had smoked. Rupture is the biggest uh, threat, but they also can form clots in these aneurysms, which can then embolize to the legs, causing levito reticularis and blue toes and ischemic ulcerations. Remember, most emboli do come from the heart, but aortic aneurysms can sometimes have clots in them and can also cause um, emboli as well. A rupture usually presents with very severe abdominal pain. Uh, they can be sometimes contained, but they'll have then very local symptoms. They tend to get a leukocytosis and tend to get anemic. You need to treat them and uh, identify them urgently because a contained rupture can clearly rupture further very quickly, and so surgery is urgently indicated. Any um, aneurysm in the abdomen that's six centimeters or greater is usually an indication for surgery. It may be an indication for surgery if it's smaller but expanding more rapidly, putting pressure on other structures, or if it has a traumatic origin. Um, any abdominal aneurysm that is um, uh, expanding quickly regardless of size usually is a recommendation for surgery. 60-year-old male with Marfan's intense stabbing, tearing pain all the way down his back. Which of the following tests is indicated? X-rays of his spine, MRI of his spine, a TEE, a pharmacologic nuclear stress test, or a pulmonary angiogram?
We're worried about dissection. You want to diagnose the dissection, so get a TEE right away um, to rule that out. 44-year-old with a bicuspid aortic valve, known ascending aortic aneurysm, chest pain radiates into her back, sharp and stabbing, blood pressure is 160 over 80 in her right, but 135 over 80 in her left arm. TEE shows a bicuspid aortic valve, but it's otherwise non-diagnostic. Which of the following is indicated? CT of her entire aorta, reassurance, it's probably musculoskeletal, left upper extremity angiogram, MRI of her spine, EGD. So remember, if one imaging modality doesn't show it, but you still have a strong suspicion, get another imaging modality. So we want to make sure we're not missing that she has a dissection. Okay, so it's following the same question. Okay, which of the following is recommended for the most likely diagnosis? Careful observation, medical therapy, immediate surgery, or immediate neurologic consult? Obviously, immediate surgery if there's a dissection. 75-year-old, smoking, diabetes, CAD, severe abdominal pain, radiates to his back, episode of syncope, hemoglobin's 11, creatinine is 3, and has a leukocytosis. Which of the following is recommended next? Renal ultrasound, CAC, CT of the entire aorta, x-rays of his spine, iliac angiography, Everybody knows where this is going. You're worried about his aorta, worried about a dissection. We are going to look at his aorta. And then finally, which of the following patients should be referred for urgent or emergent surgery? A 70-year-old female, stable AAA, measuring 4.6 centimeters, or 70-year-old male, ascending aortic dissection on TEE, or a 40-year-old female, bicuspid aortic valve, mild AI, or a 65-year-old asymptomatic male, new 4.5-centimeter AAA on a screening ultrasound. So remember, what is the most dangerous part of the aorta, ascending aorta? You saw a dissection. He should get that done. You guys are all pros now on acute coronary syndromes and vascular disease. Thanks for your attention.